Welcome to School of Everything Else. The Hero's Journey. Welcome to a special discussion about monomyth, which is to say most stories being just one story that we love to have told to us over and over again and why that is. With us are Megan Hopwood. Hello. And Lauren Grieve. Hello. You may remember Megan from our Robin Hood Prince of Thieves episode. Yay. And you may remember Lauren from our Robin Hood episode, which hasn't come out yet. That might come out someday. Yeah, it'll come out. So, yeah, you were in Flight of Dragons recently. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, certainly, Sucker Punch. Will. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> that's, uh, that's launching next week as we speak. So, it'll be a few weeks ago. Well, <clears throat> framing this, we're going to have a look at the hero's journey laid down in 1949 by Joseph Campbell in his seminal work. The Hero with a Thousand Faces, as well as The Writer's Journey, which was a refinement of this performed by Christopher Vogler in 2007, who worked for Disney in the 80s. Vogler posited that every successful movie followed these steps, and it's rather appropriate that after discussing dozens and dozens and dozens of successful movies on our podcast, that we look at what binds them all, often in unexpected ways. <clears throat> so now the most popular for these stories that seem to keep turning up in all of the discussions about the hero with a thousand faces and, and the hero's journey are Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Wizard of Oz and The Matrix, as well as most of the Disney animated classics of the 90s, which, by the way, is why they were very so much at the top of their game during this period. So we're actually going to avoid these to save on repetition of exactly what others have said. If you go to YouTube right now and just type in the hero's journey, you'll get loads and loads of videos on exactly exactly those, but not so many videos on The Sword in the Stone, Finding Nemo, Aliens, Avatar, The Lego Movie, The Hunger Games, and Thor. The following 12 stages have been represented as points on a clock, taking us from the equilibrium at the beginning of the story all the way round to the new and upgraded status quo at the end, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there are only 12 steps. In fact, Campbell does a whole load more than them. So this is a, I, I've got a very rough series of 12 in front of me uh, based on the writer's journey, and uh, I'm sure that um, the more versed in Campbell will be able to tell me uh, where he uh, you know, goes into more detail and adds extra steps along here. Uh, so as we discuss each one of these stages in detail, we can outline where these occur in our example movies if we wish. I don't think we're going to do each one each time, or that'll take us forever. But we start in every hero's journey, you know, and aside from the ones which uh, subvert this, with the ordinary world, an uncomfortable home. Who can tell me a good example of a hero's journey's ordinary world that starts out like this? And also, anyone want to sort of ju chip in with exactly what this ordinary world is used to set up? Well, go ahead, Megan. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I was just I was trying to say, go ahead, Megan. We all know you <laughs> want to talk about this. Oh, I'm so happy. So the the ordinary world is kind of representative of just the the status quo. What how things are, how they have always been, the world that the, the hero has always toiled in. So if we look to, we said Finding Nemo, the reef that he lives in, he's he's lived there for a long time. He lived there um, with his, his wife, Fishy. Does she ever get a name? Coral. He Coral. cries it out seven times at the beginning of the movie Sorry. in it's absolute anguish. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. Um, you should see it again this summer because it's funny, Dory. I know. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Um, 
so it's 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 their their natural environment that they have kind of already mastered that yeah. they're already already well established in there's no surprises aside from their goddamn barracuda mm. they no. don't they don't necessarily have to be uncomfortable there but there is something about it that means their life is not progressing any further there's no challenge there's nothing um to uh, encourage them on um in life yes it's yeah. kind of the the glass ceiling Bilbo's a great example of this one. He is very comfortable in his life, and yet there's something nagging at him. Because mm. otherwise he wouldn't choose to walk out the door. Yeah. Um, one thing, I know this is this is probably where you expected this when you asked about Joseph Campbell. I didn't have anything to say about the man himself. Um, but I do have a couple of quotes about what he was trying to achieve with the hero with a thousand faces. Okay. Um, which was basically to, to look at a very wide selection of myths and fairy tales that have become uh, kind of the collective storytelling of the human race and why so many of them had such a similar pattern. And what he was looking at with, with the hero's journey was the idea of the standard path of a mythological adventure in which the hero is a magnification of the formula represented in the rites of passage, separation, initiation, and return. And in order to have that first step of separation, you have to set up what they're separating from, because otherwise the separation is meaningless. Sharon, if, is your hair up or down right now? It's down. Could you put is it, it up, catching please? on my microphone? It keeps going... <laughs> he sounds like Muttley's on the other end of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anything to add to that while uh, Sharon puts her hair up? No, that's lovely. Okay. Uh, is there anything to add to that, Sharon? Uh, hold on. Let okay, me just sorry. try and find a clip. Uh, we'll play you a clip now. It's uh, Bilbo in The Hobbit. <laughs> good morning. What do you mean? Do you mean to wish me a good morning, or do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Or perhaps you mean to say that you feel good on this particular morning? Or are you simply stating that this is a morning to be good on? All of them at once, I suppose. Hmm. Can I help you? That remains to be seen. I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure. An adventure? Now, I don't imagine anyone west of Bree would have much interest in adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. Make you late for dinner. morning. To think that I should have lived to be good morning by Belladonna Took's son, as if I were selling buttons at the door. Beg your pardon? You've changed, and not entirely for the better, Bilbo Beckins. I'm sorry, do I know you? Well, you know my name, although you don't remember I belong to it. I'm Gandalf, and Gandalf means me. Well, because no, um, as Gandalf says, all I did was give your good Bilbo a little nudge out of the door. Ultimately, if he hadn't wanted to leave, he wouldn't have. 
Um, there's a there's a, 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 an internal drive in every uh, hero. The, a couple are thrust into situations where they literally would not have chosen to go there at all. Like, uh, the Princess and the Frog is a really good example. There's no way Tiana would have asked for what happens to her. And there's no way Tiana would have expected that to be an adventure. She had a, a path she was on, and she, that suddenly deviates wildly as she's thrown out of, the, of her ordinary world. Um, but at the same time... All of these heroes' journeys, um, like unless they're subverting it, are necessary for the hero. They they are missing in in almost every situation. The hero is missing something in their life, or they have a uh, a severe weakness which needs to be addressed. And the course of the hero's journey will address that. It's worth if it's well written. It's worth bearing in mind as well that one of the reasons that Campbell thought that this was such a repetitive pattern in story it was that. It, it does represent the process of initiation and the rites of passage through life, which the more, inverted commas, civilised we've become, the more we've actually moved away from a life that, that runs in those cycles. Yeah. And particularly as we've cut away from the final bastion of it, which, albeit in a very sanitised form, is organised religion, yeah. all we're left with in the shadow of this cycle that tells us of the natural and healthy way to live your life and progress through your life is in story. And I mean, just to jump in from a different perspective as well, uh, cognitively speaking, there's been a lot of research showing that uh, humans just kind of think and understand and exist in narrative in stories in general and um, kind of forcing a person's history or forcing the events of the world around them into a narrative construct is kind of like what humans do best. So the fact that, wow, I totally forget where I was going with this. I'm so sorry. That's right. <laughs> no, I know exactly what you mean, Lauren, the idea that you will remember things better if you can put them in a story. Yeah. There's actually some research that shows that our brains are just more set up to understand stories on a more fundamental level to the point where even something like mathematics is more understandable instead of saying like abstract concepts concepts of like seven minus five is two if you think of it like well i mean if you think about kind of the back in kindergarten or whatever you'd be like i have seven apples i give you five apples how many apples do i have like even something like that is still a story and it's still something that people are more readily capable of understanding it, it really it makes storytellers one of the most important kind of professions forever uh going back possibly even further than the oldest profession as it were oh, absolutely <laughs> and that's that's where your your history as a species comes from as well because every story that a grandparent tells to a grandchild or a, a visitor tells to um the the people that they're visiting that's how these things spread that's how ideas spread now the the interesting thing for me, since we're still at the very beginning of what the monomyth is, is kind of the exploration of why we're still using it, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But since all of the stories that you fucking kidding me, <laughs> this is Lauren's train of thought. Yeah, just derailing itself. You have a problem with authority, Mister Anderson. You believe that you are special, that somehow the rules do not apply to you. Obviously, you are mistaken. This company is one of the top software companies in the world. 
because every single employee understands that they are part of a whole. Thus, if an employee has a problem, the company has a problem. The time has come to make a choice, Mr. Anderson. Either you choose to be at your desk on time from this day forth, or you choose to find yourself another job. Do I make myself clear? Yes, Mr. Reinhardt, perfectly clear. At the beginning of all of these ones that we've already mentioned, let's just, go, let's just run through quickly what, uh, what the status quo is for all of these. As you say, Finding Nemo in the reef, uh, it is a, it's a fishy couple who've already laid their eggs. They've pretty much settled themselves. They understand that the ordinary world. Sword in the Stone, Walt is a stable boy, and uh, uh, you know he's a, he's a squire. He looks after his brother Kay, who's the warrior of the family, and he is a lowly nothing that uh, is the kind of character that we can relate to. Um, a really interesting... I, I watch so much on writing and heroes. Like, this extends out into like really great writing tutorials if you start looking for it on YouTube. One of them said, um, first of all, one of the big mistakes that writers make the mistake of is that they make their hero themselves. Big mistake. You make that hero the audience. You don't necessarily need to uh, leave them with no traits at all or make them Johnny Template, but you have to make the hero somebody that the audience are like, right, okay, I, I'm, I'm with this person. Because if it's a entirely unlike, you could not make your Jack Sparrow your hero straight off. You kind of have to have a will to sort of guide us in. Because when they made the Jack yeah, when you made the Jack Sparrow hero movies, they didn't work. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, I mean, you, you could have a Han Solo movie now that we've established who Han Solo is. And ultimately, now that the archetype is around, you can have a Star-Lord movie. I but wonder, the Star-Lord is us anyway. I wonder if that's why. But it is important that he starts as a child. Yeah. Um, to have that connection made. But I wonder if that's one of the reasons why the Johnny Template character is so mind-numbingly boring. Because he's created by... Um, by writers and developers and producers who have so little understanding of their audience mm. that they create a central character who is almost nothing so that anybody, in, in their minds, anybody can imprint upon him because there is literally nothing to him. Or they push their audience away because they create this character and it's almost like they're saying we're pretty sure this is what you want to be. Now, you then immediately alienate every member of your audience that doesn't want to be that. One of the uh, other things uh, I saw was um, rather than making a character just a whole mess of traits and just sort of throwing in detail after detail, which then becomes muddled and just becomes like that it overburdens the character, the most important thing is the weakness. That's why... Um, uh, you know, when you're writing the character, that is the, the the reader themselves, because if you get a good enough, strong enough, relatable weakness, in the case of Finding Nemo, it's fear, fear for his family members, and you're given a very good grounding as to why that fear is there. Um, you know, his his wife was killed, so he's a super overprotective of Nemo, and that needs to be dealt with throughout the journey. Uh, Aliens, another wonderful film. Uh, the um, most of the ordinary world stuff is actually at the beginning of Alien, and then Ripley starts on her journey. But if we start her back in Aliens, the ordinary world is her life after she's given her deposition to the company and then tried to reintegrate herself into society and ended up at like a, a factory worker, sorry, a warehouse worker, and she's miserable and she can't deal with the, well, the, the alien is, is haunting her dreams, but that's her new status quo. And the only way she can amend it is to seek out a new status quo which requires her to face that fear mm -hmm. um 
Avatar, another James Cameron film, you don't even get the ordinary world in the theatrical cut of that film. Uh, but in the director's cut, you do. You get, um, I can't remember what his name is, um, Jake Sully. Uh, Jake Sully uh, is uh, unable to walk and um, he hates his existence and then he's given a new uh, chance at it and um, that requires him to go to a new planet. So they they pull him over the threshold before that. Like in, in the theatrical version, you don't even get to see the ordinary world. He's already passed the threshold. Uh, then uh, in the Lego movie, you got Emmett sitting down with his plant watching uh, Honey, Where Are My Pants? And that's Emmett's life. That's Emmett's status quo. He doesn't have any friends, and we are made very aware of this. Somehow they managed to make him not miserable about it. I think the, the specific thing about The Ordinary World is that you have to have a sense that nothing is going to change unless somebody does something. Yeah. And either that's going to be the hero leaving by choice because it's the uncomfortable home and they, they're not happy where they are. Yeah. Or it's too comfortable and they're going to be made to leave by force. But that requires some kind of external um, activating event. Usually either the villain in some way affects that um, because they'll be the one antagonizing there. The idea of antagonist versus protagonist is that the protagonist is just going just to be there until they're antagonized. Uh, or it's the mentor or some other event that's uh, in some way caused by the person who wants that hero to leave and, and maybe the difference between a mentor and an antagonist is that a mentor gives you the choice to leave and an antagonist doesn't some really really well crafted mentors are also antagonists good point Hunger Games Katniss works in shitty District 12 uh, hunts on the sly and uh, not very happy with her life but ultimately she's you know protective of her family nothing's going to change there until the capital step in and, and start changing things and of course then fate comes along pulls Prim out of the hat um, and Thor Thor is at the equilibrium of this one's kind of astonishing if you think about how old Thor actually is he's basically existed for a thousand years to become a dick at the beginning of Thor, he is an arrogant dick, and uh, he literally wages war on another planet for a slight that he doesn't understand the, uh, the background of. And um, nothing's going to change until Odin decides, I've raised a wrongin here, at least one. And uh, so, yeah, the, 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 the standard status quo of uh, Asgard is, we are awesome. We, you know, it's a utopia. We are the best people in the whole galaxy, and there's nothing that could challenge our awesomeness. And then something does. You never get that moment, do you, of Odin just sitting down, staring at the floor, and going, "What, what? have I done? I'm a <laughs> terrible father." Well, it could have, could possibly have happened when I told my sons, "You were both born to rule, but only one of you can be king." Well, that's not going to make them now, so competitive, now, is it? <laughs> So he's an antagonist in Thor. Um, okay, so that's stage one of 12. Any more on stage one? And Lauren, you, you had uh, something else to say there. Uh, the, the reason it's even called the monomyth, so Campbell actually was a comparative, re, he, he studied comparative religion and comparative mythologies. And it wasn't so much looking at today's medium, media and, and storytelling, it was looking at the past, so like Homer's epics and like the the myths of Theseus and and, and ancient uh, Egypt and, Gre um, Greek yeah, and Greco Roman myth, Egyptian Celtic. myth, Celtic Iowa. myth, yeah, they they all blend together. They all have this very uh, like kind of deliberate arc that follows these steps that we're going to be going over, and uh, it's it, it's uh, it's something that I've always questioned as to whether or not this monomyth is some kind of 
just like inherent truth in the act of storytelling or in the way that we perceive stories or if it's been carried forward uh, via kind of like our culture and our learning just because these are what all the old myths were. These are the things we studied and now we're going to create new stories in a similar vein uh, moving forward. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's just interesting. There's not enough understanding as to whether or not it's something that we do because we've just always done it or something because it's an inherent quality in how we understand storytelling. Well, one of the things that, that Campbell raised was the fact that these these patterns emerge in very disparate cultures and you, you get a similar structure regardless of where those stories started out. And even in um, sort of tribal environments where they've had very little contact with other uh, other peoples, their stories often follow a very similar pattern. And he did look um, at admittedly the very Freudian structure of it, so he could have been very heavily influenced with, with Freud's opinions, many of which these days have been kind of proved to be not quite as on the nose as he seemed to think they were. Um, <laughs> but the part of what these stages do is go through um, a matching process that Freud theorised was the, the development of the self and the, the maturation of a human being. So, um, I mean, one of the things that, um, that he goes back to quite a few times in The Hero with a Thousand Faces is that if you don't have access to these stages in story, they will come forward in dreams. And a lot of the time they match the, the steps quite similarly, depending on what point in your psychological development you're at, even if you don't have any conscious familiarity with those stories. I'm going to put these 12 steps in the uh, notes, folks, because uh, Shannon and me and Lyra sat down yesterday and applied them to a whole bunch of movies just while we were sat and talking over breakfast, and it went on into past lunchtime. It just it, they, they work so well with so many stories we're all familiar with. Uh, in su- some surprising ways as well. So that's uh, what what twelve are you looking at? Because uh, Campbell originally had seventeen. All right, uh, I believe I'm looking at the ones in the writer's journey. Mm, I think though, if you look at because I've got Campbell's seventeen in front of me, Lauren, and I think there's quite a few of them that you can actually distill. Like there's two, and you could distill them into one because they kind of mm. go together. And several oh, of mine are kind of double barreled and sort of they bunched up a couple. So I actually think I have all 17 within these 12 anyway. But, okay. uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure, find another. Uh, another one is that um, did, did uh, Campbell actually write about, was the ordinary world one of the stages of the 17? No, it's, no, not. it's not. He starts go. with the call. Okay. Yes. Well, then we'll, we'll go to the call then, which is basically uh, sometimes it's a literal call. This is the thing that pulls the, or pulls the person out the door or pushes the person out the door or at least suggests that they need to leave. How can you hope to protect the kingdom? Get to the healing room! No! There won't be a kingdom to protect if you're afraid to act. The Jotuns must learn to fear me, just as they once feared you. That's pride and vanity talking, not leadership. You've forgotten everything I taught you. But a warrior's patience. While you wait and be patient, the Nine Realms laugh at us. The old ways are done, you'd stand giving speeches while Asgard falls. You are a vain! Greedy! Cruel boy! And you are an old man and a fool! Yes. I was a fool. To think you were ready. Father. Hey! Thor. Odin's son. 
You have betrayed the express command of your king. Through your arrogance and stupidity, you have opened these peaceful realms and innocent lives to the horror and desolation of war! You are unworthy of these realms, unworthy of your title! You're unworthy! loved ones you have betrayed. I now take from you your power in the name of my father and his father before. I owe it all, father. Whoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. And our Campbell experts barely said a word. Come on, Megan. <laughs> you pretty much like schooled us on this, so you go for it. What is well, the call to adventure? Describe it. Well, you you did it really well, actually. It's it's the the person or the event or the the cause of the the need to change, which is paired really well with the next step, which is the refusal of the call. And I think we can probably kind of lump those. Yeah, yeah go for together. it. Describe the refusal or denial of the call and, and why that seems to be a very very recurring um, theme. Well, and I think this kind of goes back to the the hero as the audience. There's that initial no. I I like my life. I like the way that things are. I don't need to be um, going out on an adventure. Thank you. I very cannot much. afford to go running off on adventures. I am a baggins of baggins. Yes. Yeah, precisely. It's um, and it it's one of those ones that sometimes it is it is kind of skipped. If we look at say. I think the Lego movie does a pretty good job of kind of passing over that that refusal. Yeah. At least in the initial because he does want to be to be liked and special and and as soon as they say, Hey, you're the special, he is totally just diving straight into mm-hmm. into that. I I think the refusal is something that it's very easy to miss because um a lot of the time it can be momentary. And, and incredibly brief, especially if part of what's pushing the hero out of the door is the uncomfortable home and the fact that they're not happy there. I think sometimes, especially with simplified stories, it can feel a bit wrong for them to be sitting there going, my life is terrible, I really wish something would happen to help me move on. And then the thing happens and the first thing they do is, uh, actually, no, you have to have a reason for, for them to say no if that's going to be the case. And one of the things that I noticed is that where there is a very definite refusal of the call, it happens in threes. They refuse twice and then the third time they take it up. The what was it um, in Sword in the Stone actually? Like uh, Merlin has to pretty much badger him to, to uh, and eventually on the third time he's like, yeah, okay, fine, yeah. come a little bit. Exactly, in the but the, but they're so brief and they're so, so it's, it's 
literally just like Merlin saying to him, right, well, I will come to your um, to your castle and I will educate you. And he just goes, oh, actually, no, I've got to be getting back. And then he carries on. And it's just a sentence or two here and there, but he does refuse th- uh, twice and then... Uh, I found yeah, Emmett's yeah. refusal, by the way. Uh, it's uh, it's it's really straightforward. It's it's just instinct. Uh, he falls through the floor towards the piece of the pick of piece of death, piece of resistance, mm-hmm. and he screams his ass off. That's it. He's basically <laughs> terrified out of his mind. He's like, "No, this should not be happening." Oh, it's a piece of resistance. It's so awesome. But gravity's got him at that point, and that's. Yeah. I mean, part of the point of the refusal, as Campbell outlined it, is that fleeing from the god who is calling you to your vocation is yeah. utterly pointless yeah. because you can refuse as much as you want this is happening this is your destiny and you will get dragged out that door one way or another yeah. you may in fact cause more terrible things to happen by refusing it feels like in avatar uh, the uh, james cameron one he could probably have just refused but um uh, but uh, say in in aliens uh, when ripley if she'd just refused that she just kept on having nightmares. She deliberately calls back Burke and says, okay, Burke, we're going out there to wipe it out, not to take back. And, uh, you know, she p- tries to put the, t- the quest on her terms. Mm. You know, in the Lego movie, I think there might even be another time when he tries to refuse right before he falls into the, oh, yeah? into the hole, because he, whenever he first sees uh, wild style, yeah. um, he goes to call like the authorities on her. And she's kind of like his, a white rabbit as it were uh to mix metaphors from another story but um there's that the moment where he's just kind of like oh this is something strange i'm gonna do the right thing and not pursue this not see what's going on but i'm going to call like the authorities to take care of this and then he he's smitten and goes on with it anyway but it's just there's that initial instinct of i'm not like i'm not going to deal with this i'm going to get somebody else to take care of it yeah, to kind of keep the status quo. Oh, yeah, I can see that. With Thor, the uh, uh, call to adventure is actually, um, it's not an adventure at all. He's the one saying, we must go and attack them first. He is being a warmonger. There is no adventure there. He's stepping outside of the world on purpose to um, b- because he is all, he's weak and arrogant and flawed in that regard. There's, there's nothing to deny of this one. Uh, apart oh. From, oh, yeah, no, is there? Well, so if you think about it in Thor, what he's trying to run away from is that uh, call of – oh, man, to excuse this phrase, the call of duty ah. that he has, um, th- that sense of, no, you should be a ruler. You should be a diplomat. You should be more gracious than this. And he says, no, I refuse to be the king you want me to be. I'm going to go out and smash some heads around. Oh, my God. So basically the the journey with Thor, the adventure is his – uh, learning responsibility and the refusal is his going out in search of adventure. That is screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what we call a subversion. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's subverting it, but still following the tropes, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Because I mean, that's that's even embodied in the whole aspect of the hammer, where he can't wield it until he is more capable of picking of of uh like taking on that responsibility and being more mm-hmm. of like the ruler he's supposed to be as opposed to the arrogant prick that he started out as 
But this is this is part of the the metaphorical point of the hero's journey is that yes, in the story it's often an adventure out, but in actual fact, what it's representing is a journey in and finding things within yourself that help you to then grow and develop and and become the person that you're supposed to be. You don't literally have to go anywhere to be able to do that. Um, and part of the point of the stories is to help you be able to do that without having to go out and explore the world. And one of the things that that caught my attention. Um, while I was reading the book, because this is this is the first time I've had a go at reading uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces, and th- what I was given to understand about Campbell's approach um, previously, in part the fact that it's the hero, not the heroine, that it feels very much like a um, an explanation for a masculine journey, but in actual fact, it's. It can be applied either way. And one of the things that I'd read was that he talks about the journey out and that the the female, if you have a female hero, it's often a journey in rather than than them having to actually go anywhere. But I think part of that is simply that if you have a female central character, depending on the culture in which you're telling that story, it seems or it can seem illogical for a girl to go out on an adventure, that her exploration is by necessity kept within the boundaries of, of sort of the, the domestic sphere, if you're going back far enough and, and looking at cultures where that would be the standard. Speaking of girls, in The Hunger Games, Katniss never wavers from her, I have to be the, uh, I have to take Prim's place in The Hunger Games, I will do The Hunger Games. She does not ever at any point refuse or deny the call of that. However, she refuses and denies pretty much everything else in The Hunger Games. She's like, fashion? No, don't want anything to do with it. Rich people? Screw them. Don't want anything to do with them. Help? I don't need help. Romance? Screw romance. Don't want any of that. I don't even like the cat. (laughs) But I think part of that is her determination to maintain that she is involved in this only on her terms. Yeah. It's, it's the only tiny bit of power that she has, she's actually got in a society that won't afford her any. But if we look at something like Pride and Prejudice, that it is dominantly female characters, it is kind of a journey within and looking at yourself and seeing how your own status quo in your person needs to evolve and change and go mm. through this process to become someone else. Nearly all the best heroes' journeys are journeys within. Absolutely right, uh, and, and it's a, it's a self-examination, even if it's not conscious. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important to note this is kind of usually with the call to adventure is where we usually first get our glimpse of the mentor. Mm-hmm. That's stage four here. Uh, so yeah, it comes in various parts, but but often the call to adventure is mm. is sometimes where we see our first glimpse of. Yeah. Of this person. If they hold back the mentor for later, it's because the hero needs to go through a crucible of sorts first before they're prepared to meet a mentor. But uh, often the, the mentor is the, the person kicking them out the door in the first place. Um, in Finding Nemo, actually, I think the mentor in Finding Nemo is Rush. or Is it Crush or Rush, the, uh, the turtle? Uh, crush. One thing we found while we were looking at mentors is it's not necessarily somebody wise. It's not necessarily somebody old. Uh, it's not even necessarily somebody who's going to, like, in Hercules, the Disney film, it's not Phil. It's Zeus. It's Zeus is the one basically trying to uh, change Hercules' mindset. Phil is trying to train his body, but ultimately uh, the, the, the person who actually is, is in charge of laying down, look, this is the thing you've been lacking in your life. That tends to be the mentor. 
Um, my personal favorite mentor that I found in this list, Aliens. Who is the mentor in Aliens? Mm. And bear in mind, the mentor is often twinned with receiving the special or magical item. So with Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I don't want to talk about Star Wars, but with Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's the lightsaber. With Harry Potter, it's the wand. Um, Zord and the Stone, obviously, it's the sword, but that's later. Do you think in Avatar, it's the body? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. an unusual the, the, thing. The item, if, if there's going to be a special item that's bestowed or a special a spell or a piece of knowledge or something like that, mm. the, the step that it's in in the structure, and you're absolutely right, the mentor can turn up at various different points. It's usually after the call has been heard, but not necessarily after it's been accepted. Mm. Um, but usually it's then, it's after that. Once the, the hero said, yes, okay, I will go do this, then the mentor turns up and says, right, you're going to need this. Mm. Um, but sometimes Sometimes the mentor doesn't turn up until after the hero has crossed the threshold, which mm. makes that journey even harder because they've got to do that push themselves. But then you would you would expect to see some other form of supernatural aid before they get to the threshold. In the case of Thor, it's Meow Meow, which he's been you know wielding for a thousand years nearly. Mm. Yeah. He's, he's had like Meow Meow should not be special to him. It is, but the fact that he can't hold Meow Meow suddenly makes it super special. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that the, the entire journey is pinned on his worth uh, in that regard. The Lego movie, The Piece of Resistance, may as well be a MacGuffin, but it's, uh, it's, it's tied in with the actual the, the motivations of the chief antagonist as well. Um, so, so, but for the Lego movie, could you also say that the mentor could be wild style since it's because of getting entangled with her that he gets the Piece of Resistance, whether or not she deliberately handed it to him? There is still like a proximity between those two events. Well, who changes Emmett's mind the most? Do you think who who changes his way of thinking and operating? Or is and this is an interesting one: is Emmett the mentor in this? No. No. Nope. <laughs> no. Em, Emmett, Emmett is too much of a blank slate to be the mentor. Also, um, generally unskilled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, in all fairness, I know what you mean about Wild Style, and and possibly she has a little bit to do with that phase. But mm. I think her her resentment at him being the chosen one, yeah, kind of uh, disqualifies her from being the mentor because she doesn't have that big picture view that you would expect the mentor to have. The mentor may not be one of the gods, but they're kind of with the gods' big picture. Mm. in this well so um, then the mentor in the lego movie would have to be morgan freeman yes or, um, yeah <laughs> um, vertiver okay i would have i would have known it if you hadn't forgotten it you forgetting it makes me forget it <laughs> ventriloquist <laughs> they're a similitude morgan freeman you cannot yeah. well, just, that's morgan freeman yeah. this character doesn't need a name he is just morgan freeman now the something something you said sparked a, a thought though sharon so you were talking about how the for females in myths the story is very different and in the lego movie wild style is annoyed that she is not the chosen one that she is not the hero and does that mean that like is that nodding at that trope that usually that it's usually the male hero because then wild style has to come to terms with that and therefore has her own inner journey yes. in a sense 
Yeah, absolutely. And this is this ties in perfectly with something that um, that me and Alex were talking about the other day, actually, that if you look at um, the right, the classic repetitive example of the female story in uh, modern cinema is the Disney princess. Mm -hmm. Okay, and if you look at the vast majority of Disney princesses, where they start in their life it's it's the uncomfortable home there's something about it that they're not happy with or they would like to change but very specifically they are in some way limited or restricted there is a cap on what they can do despite the fact that they have all the urges all the curiosity to go out in the world and explore and change and do things something is holding them in place and one of the 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 ways that um, Campbell actually mentions the differences between male stories and female stories is and I don't think this is entirely correct, but he distinguished them as myth and fairy tale because the way he put it, the men have time to sit around telling each other these great big expansive myths of the whole world. Women had far too much work to do. The best they could hope in time-wise was to squeeze in a little bit of a fairy tale for the kids ideally with the impact of making the children scared of going beyond the the boundaries of the fire so that they wouldn't go off and and wander too far and get hurt. A cautionary tale. Exactly. So fairy tales, by their very nature, have a measure of um, telling people that what's out there is bad. You might want to go and explore and and follow that natural curiosity and and impulse to to move away from the protectiveness of, of your family that all young children have, but don't follow it, especially if you're a girl, um, because we, we need you to stay close, because you are very valuable. When, you, when you're looking at sort of a, a, um, a, a very ancient culture where there's only a hand, you know, a very small number of people, you, you want to protect your reproducers. That's bottom line what it comes down to. You want your girls to stay close so that you can keep them for the time when you need them to have more kids. And and I think you, you then have the result of that being that a lot of these stories where you have female heroines, there's a roof. There's, there is that cap. You don't go any further than this. You start off, you could be the most skilled, the, the best at whatever it is you do, but you don't get to go any further. And I exactly think Wildstyle was a reference to that. And, and- isn't it interesting then, uh, or curious, that so uh, when you're talking about the female myth, uh, my first thought actually went to Tangled, Disney's Tangled, mm-hmm. because the story of Rapunzel, the old fairy tale of Rapunzel, uh, she's not even a character. She's more of a trophy to be won, and it's all told from the prince's side of things. Mm. Um, and there's not even like an inner journey. It's just a fairy tale. But then Disney took that story and made a full myth where it's actually she's going on kind of the male – uh, like hero's journey because mm. she starts uh, in that tower and then ventures out and is definitely way more of the kind of masculine role in that film in a lot of ways, like the, the traditional one. She's the one who beans people with a frying pan and is usually much more <laughs> forward uh, in her momentum. She's more like Luke Skywalker than Snow White. Yes. Well, Snow yes. White, I mean, she might as well just be a mannequin. Yeah. Mm. Although this was one of the other things that, that I mentioned to Alex, you, even the, the princesses that seem to just want a prince, even that is freedom of some kind. It's, it's uh, freedom from their, the drudgery of their everyday life. Mm. Uh, but going back to Aliens, 
you said that it was scary. It's scarier, and that's why they're horror movies because there is no mentor, there is no wise person who's met the aliens before and knows how to deal with them. Effectively, Ripley becomes the cl- the crone, St- maiden mother crone, alien, aliens, <laughs> alien three. By the time she's in Alien Three, she's the one dejectedly telling all the prisoners how it is, and they're the ones going, "Shut up, you old woman! We're not going to listen to you." Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the next step after the crone is, is death. That's yeah. why she has nowhere else to go at the end of three. Um, but uh, <laughs> there is actually a mentor of sorts who imbues Ripley with mystical items in Aliens. So, so the first – who? which one of the Marines is the one that shot, showed her how to shoot the pulse rifle? Exactly. Uh, it's, uh, is that Hudson? It's Hicks. Hicks. Hicks? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Bean. Michael Bean. Uh, he not only uh, shows her how to use the uh, pulse rifle, which is absolutely crucial for her at the end, he gives her uh, a, a uh, tracking device. Device, which she gives then to Newt, uh, and uh, effectively Newt, because Ripley's been split in two by the uh, by, by volition of um, you know being taken away from her daughter by the alien, and uh, Newt's been split in two by being taken away from her family. Uh, Ripley subconsciously sees I can heal this. This can, you know if 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 Newt wants me as a new parent, then I will be her new parent. So she gives her the uh, tracking device. That's the mystical item, and. Um, you know, Hicks basically just gives. He's just a grunt. He's a he's a soldier, but that's all she needs to be able to succeed, to be able to slay the dragon. Yeah. She has the knowledge of what it is, coupled she needs the tools with her existing knowledge of how to use a power loader, which she learned all on her own. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Michael Bean's got form for uh, mentor roles because, mm-hmm. technically speaking, um, Terminator, Reese's, bingo. Yeah. Yep. Um, and in Avatar, the mentor is Sigourney Weaver. Uh, Yay, and the cycle continues. <laughs> yeah. Um, and let's see who else we got. The Hunger Games, Haymitch. You know, the, the person who's been through the wars already, been through the Hunger Games, and he's a rubbish mentor to begin with. He's got this, he's all over the place. And some of the best mentors are, ment- uh, are mentors that you don't think are mentors until you have to really think about it, or, or that they appear to be kind of useless. Or, uh, and, you know, there, there was, again, in this, uh, the, the writing um, videos I was watching, Fantastic characters are characters you expect to be allies but turn out to be enemies and vice versa. And the mastery that Joe Rowling managed of doing that with Snape for seven books. I don't think anyone else has managed that before. No, and that had me guessing up until the very mm-hmm. the very absolute end. And in Thor, who's his mentor in that? Because, I mean, it's kind of, it's Selvig, but he doesn't know everything, and it's Odin, but he's the one who's also the antagonist. Mm. Huh. Is Is Jane a little bit of... A little bit. Of a mentor. I was going to say Jane, but then I was going to make a flippant comment about how she gave him coffee and that's a pretty sacred relic in my book (laughs) well technically she is one of the ones who's like primarily saying stop being such a dick which is all he really needs to learn (laughs) there's some deleted scenes in Thor which they really kind of should have left in you know and he he goes uh, this drink what is it another and smashes the cup on the floor he um, returns a new cup to that um, cafe and apologizes for breaking it which is just a little tiny bit of extra responsibility. It's an important baby step. Um, I think if you argue that the um, if if the hammer is the special item, but the supernatural assistance is actually the fact that Odin strips his ability to use the hammer from him, yeah. 
um, then I think that puts Odin in the mentor role. He does it in a very about face way, um, but he basically makes Thor work out what he has to do mm. and how he has to be by taking away the tools he's always relied on. So Thor's magical power is to not have any powers. Yes. Which <laughs> which kind of goes in with what we were talking about earlier about how Thor is almost a reversal of the um, kind of direction of the myth usually. Yeah. Mm. And it fits with the fact that then you move to the Avengers where he's got those powers from beginning to end and he's probably the least involved member of the team. Yeah. Uh, Crush in Finding Nemo what I was going to be, I began to say at the very beginning when I was talking about mentors, he's the one who shows uh, Marlon, look, I let my little kid, he's, you know, he's out there, he's doing his own thing, and he comes back safe and sound. You know, you just got to kind of let him do that, just let him roam about. And that is the seed that he, he uh, sets in Marlon's head of, you know, maybe if I can get this, maybe I can get Nemo back, maybe I should, you know, shouldn't need to protect him quite as much as I do. I don't, does he ever deny the call? Does he ever think to himself, I can't go chasing after Nemo anymore? I mean, I know he gives up quite a bit, but he de- does he ever s- deny chasing after Nemo? I can't think of any moment. He's always totally dedicated to that. Although he denies, again, like Katniss, everything else about it. He, he's always questioning uh, Dory's judgment. I think with Marlon, it tends to show more in terms of refusing help. Yeah. We don't need their help. They're weird people. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't want Dory's help to start yeah. with. Doesn't want the help from the shoal of fish or the shark. Yeah. yeah, it's more his rejection of the the unknown. Yeah, that I, is is closer to his actual rejection of the journey. Oh my god! No, I've just realised why. Right, Marlin's hero's journey, his actual journey, is going to save Nemo. But his hero's journey is learning that Nemo does not need to be quite as protected as he thinks. Indeed. That's what he refuses. In the meantime, Nemo's going on his own hero's journey. Yeah, absolutely. Does that make Marlin's journey more of the internal journey? Oh, yes. Yeah, I would say actually that's quite a a good um, pattern with older characters because they've already solidified parts of their personality that may need to be unpicked. Yeah. So to, I need to mention this, and you'll probably cut it out. But um, I I got to see Zootopia the other day for the midnight release, mm-hmm. and it's killing me that I can't talk about it, ah! it to all these different uh, levels because Tell you what, when we review it, you can bring that back up. Man, yes. it's actually kind of a fascinating. Like I, the way that I'm re- interpreting this, it's actually kind of a fascinating inversion of a couple of the tropes. Oh, nice. And it's like kind of killing me because that movie's amazing. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm very glad it's amazing. Um, okay, so the next step is crossing the threshold. This is my uh, number five on here, which seems like a late late moment because in a lot of these that we've been talking about, the, the adventure is already underway. So what is so significant about the threshold? This is the, the last stage of what Campbell had down as separation because he's actually got the journey broken up into three main stages – Um, Like I say, you've got separation, initiation and return Um, and the crossing of the first threshold, which begins the descent into what he referred to as the belly of the whale, is the, the final step away from home. It's the point of no return. It's the point at which the hero makes the final decision to set off. And from this point on, even if they turn around and go back, 
even if they, you know, and in some cases they physically can't, but even if they turn around and go back, it's that whole, it becomes the you can't cross the same river twice thing, that, that if they go back now, things will have changed. They may, in fact, have to go out again because this journey is not complete. It's uh, neatly done in, again, I don't want to try and avoid Lord of the Rings, but there's that great moment in the field uh, for Sam where he's standing at a point where the field goes from uh, green to, uh, uh, I think it's yellow corn in the middle, and he says, if I take one more step, I'll have been further than I've ever been. It is a literal threshold crossing. Mm-hmm. I was That's actually the very first thing I thought of, too, as we were talking about this. Mm-hmm. And I think what's, what's also something interesting is I don't think Frodo crosses that threshold until he decides to take the ring to Mordor. Yeah. I feel like he's much more like willing to go further in the world and yeah. still feel like, okay, coming back. But like Sam crosses that threshold and then much later Frodo crosses that threshold. Yeah. That, uh, so you mean at the uh, end of the council of Elrond? That's, that's where I would say he crosses it whenever yeah. he's looking at the, the discord all around him and he decides that no one else is capable of doing this yeah. and he will bear the burden. That wasn't planned originally. So maybe it's got to do with the point at which you, you truly step out of your comfort zone. For Sam, that moment comes very early. And for Frodo, it's later because he's got more knowledge of the world. He feels more comfortable out and about in it. Although, obviously, he does go through various doors and make various choices. You're right. That's the big one. Mm. Uh, in uh, Sword in the Stone, uh, I think it's it's when they first start turning into fish and squirrels and things. It's it's when um, Wart accepts that this crazy old man doing his conjuring tricks is actually you know he's he's party to some deeper knowledge and this he he, this his boyish brain can barely comprehend what he's being told but um that's when he's over the threshold yeah it's when it's when they wake up that first morning and merlin starts his education basically yeah in aliens it's when the sulaco approaches the planet it's so you know she's once she's on it and once they wake up they are past the point of no return they're there I'd say it's even for aliens. It's even more specifically the drop ship down to the planet because uh. a lot of the a lot of the the dialogue, if I remember correctly, is very like apprehensive, and it's like literally the whole five by five as they're going down. There's like we can't even go back to the Sulaco to go back the other way. Yeah. So that yeah, uh, yeah technically, at any point up to then, Ripley could have gone. You know what, guys? How about I stay on the ship? You call me if you need me. I'm going to yeah. stay up here. You're yeah. absolutely right. Any uh, Before that moment, any turning back is mm. actually part of the refusal of the call cycle again. And in the Hunger Games, I suppose it's when they enter the capital uh, on the train. I would even say it's when they get on the train. Yeah. That's even yeah. a completely... Because, they've yeah, of course, no one's ever been on that train unless they go into the on or off to the other districts and everyone in District 12 stays put. Even the, the train itself is a completely different environment. It's, yeah. Yeah. that is mahogany. There is finery everywhere that's the beyond anything food. that she could have ever yeah. imagined in her own environment. It's a completely... Mm-hmm new place and since the first part of the movie is specifically is so uh, you know incredibly like poverty sticking and deprived it looks like sickening opulence to be suddenly flung into Mm, yeah and and for them it's travel food um but the the train itself is a vehicle that gives you a very strong impression that it only goes one way and Mm. it doesn't stop (laughs) threshold in thor rainbow road easy straight down to earth Yeah, <laughs> he's even got the literal descent. Mm-hmm. You, yes, you do. Yeah. I think in a lot of um, of stories that do feel very mythological in their structure, you get a literal descent at this point. 
I think that in the Lego movie, it's when they're on the motorbike and they're, they're getting away, and that's when uh, uh, Emmett realizes he's a wanted man and there's there's no going back, and uh, he's being propelled into adventure. It's when they go through the first portal, though, is the yeah, is yes. the, yeah, the that's first the threshold itself. Threshold. Yeah, because yeah. because before then, again, at any point he could dive off the motorbike, go back home, and it's just part of the refusal of the course. And of course, he's in Lego City, and the moment he goes through, he ends up in Wild West Town, so he's mm. completely completely different area. I mean, usually the yeah. threshold. Like it is the border point before you get to a new place, and we also have our our threshold guardians who is who are we have to get past to get through mm, the Lego cops in that case. So the Lego cops that we have to yeah. to get past. We have our our family in Hunger Games that we have to who yeah. want us to stay and are crying and screaming and trying to keep us from going but in avatar yeah. jake when he uh, wakes up in his new pa- uh, pandora body he has to bust past everybody else to run outside mm. and i think this is um sort of a, a really good tie-in with the psychological processes of this structure as well that when you decide to make change in your life mm. there will be people who don't want you to change you know, because that has some significance to them, because they're used to you the way you are, and you're going to have to, in some way, fight, even if that's only with yourself and your own internal conflict, to get past them and actually move on to the process of changing. So then in Aliens, would the Guardians be her own fear and the doubt of the Marines that she's going with? The doubt towards her yeah no it's that meeting with that you know she starts to try to explain to them you know what this this thing is and then vasquez interrupts her rather like i've been interrupting you guys with hey man all i need to know is one thing where they are and it's like well no wait a second i was trying to tell you about this is stuff that might keep you alive Mm. well again ripley's um ripley's journey is not just about getting there and dealing with the aliens it's specifically making sure that it goes a certain way yeah um and again at that point when they're they're saying they're going to do it this way she could you know what you do this without me if if this is your attitude you do this without me but ultimately i think her fear of the fact that they will bring it back yeah. is what keeps her going at that point. Which, of course, they would, because without her brains down on the planet, everyone else would have been fooled by Burke's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, in Finding Nemo, there's there's a, a straightforward threshold. It's just Marlon's comfort zone, which is any the, just swimming away from any of the area that he's familiar with. As soon as he meets Dory, he's already past the threshold. Mm. And arguably, the fact that Nemo is his family suggests that the moment Nemo gets taken away from him, the threshold has been pushed past him. Mm. Mm. I, hmm. I don't know if I'd agree with that because the, the, the act of crossing the threshold has to be a deliberate one mm. because it's, it, it really is something that you can be pushed out the door, but to take the step into the realm of night, which is basically where that threshold is taking you. It's taking you into that dimension where everything twists and turns and all the change and, and lessons are going to happen. Okay. That has to be something that's done consciously. Well, he subconsciously swims like crazy towards Nemo, even though Nemo's going far, far too fast for him to catch and is, you know, goes over the threshold while that's happening. Okay. Um, so a, a thought, I, I know it's not one of the ones that we're talking about, but we were talking about Lord of the Rings earlier. Does that make Bilbo's threshold the moment when he can't go back for handkerchiefs? Yeah. <laughs> it's when he's like, I'm going to need a pony. 
That's just great. And then another thing, again, it's not a movie that we're talking about, but it just keeps making me think of it now that we've gone through the whole departure, the whole first act. Mm-hmm. For Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. is the threshold, uh, you know, soon to be Star Lord being beamed onto the ship in the very beginning? Because kind of everything after that, after the opening. I guess dance number is more like the test allies and enemies. It's like the beginning of the initiation and it's just extended for the whole film and his ordinary world call to adventure refusal to call meeting with the mentor and crossing the threshold happens in like the pre title sequence. Technically. Yeah. Yondu is the mentor and um, it feels like there was a bit of uh, guardians of the galaxy that we missed, which included the music spirit in the sky, uh, which involved Yondu talking to the little kid and saying, maybe they should eat you. Uh, But ultimately it's described so vividly afterwards that we kind of get the, you know, as you're right, as you say, uh, Lauren, the impression of all of these stages occurring. And then when we get to star Lord again, He's in tests, allies, and enemies, which is the next stage. Oh, one more crossing the threshold. I know we said we weren't going to mention it, but it's such an excellent one. In the Matrix, it's taking the red pill, and then specifically the mirror itself becomes the threshold that uh, Neo passes straight through. Yeah. Um, we're just briefly going back to the Guardians of the Galaxy thing. One, um, one of the best ways in which stories can, uh, make, can be made more complex when they're using this kind of structure is to loop so you end up with smaller heroes journeys within the overarching structure of the the journey Mm. so i think in um in star lord's case he has a small hero's journey at the beginning but then once you're into that opening dance number this is his new normal Mm. um and Mm. although because the we'll talk about this much later when we get to the end but the the return to home doesn't always have to be a literal return to starting point sometimes it is you make where you are now your new home and that becomes your your new ordinary world oh i've got a good one uh just to go back a little bit before we go we carry on with the threshold it's actually a special item what's the special item for katniss not you sharon you know no, it. i know we've had this conversation <laughs> uh, i want to say her pin but that seems way too it's a good one because that is very Too symbolic small. of the the uh, the uprising which occurs as a result of her. But it's almost not her special item. It's the special item of oh gosh, Maisley Donner. Bear in mind that it the said, thing that can be bestowed doesn't necessarily need to be an item. It can be a power. It can be symbolic. It can be something metaphorical. I don't say it's her her knowledge of archery and her father's. Mm. Nope. No? It's not what I'm thinking. What have I got written on this piece of paper? <laughs> the, the special item in the supernatural aid is usually unexpected. The archery um, is something that Katniss carries with her from yeah, the beginning. Yeah, that's a skill. Yeah, that's true. It's something that's new to Katniss as soon as she starts in the Hunger Games proper. It's what Hamish keeps trying to talk to her about. And she's like, no, shut up, Hamish, you're all drunk. <laughs> But just having having okay. some class. Why and how, okay, you're very you're on the money. Why and how does Katniss win the Hunger Games? So we're talking like more personality. She's in a wider sense. Um, a, what what gives her the edge over other competitors? And it's not just because she's shit hot at archery. That would only have gotten her so far. And the bow is a false symbol, by the way. Uh, she only actually really uses it once or twice and not all that massively effectively. It's, it's what she's reliant on, but it's not actually the thing that saves her ass. I'll, I'll cut this one short. Approval. Being liked. 
by the masses, by the audience. It's something very alien to her, and it's the thing that keeps her alive. Without that, they don't get the supplies. Without that, they don't get to do that final gambit with the Nightlock. They, they they're dead, basically, without that level of approval. It's a new magic power she has bestowed upon her with Hamish's advice and um, other uh, mentors like Sinner coming coming along and saying look you know, th- you know I can actually commiserate with you on this and rather than forcing you to do this I'm going to see if I can bring out who you are for these people uh, it's it's quite subtle but um, yeah the, mm-hmm. the level of approval is a new superpower for Katniss and it's something that actually stays with her the whole way through the whole all of these Four, it's actually three, books are um, are about Katniss's relationship with the rest of the world, or specifically her isolation and what the rest of the world thinks of her. So I've never seen or read The Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. But oh, Lauren. Is the, yeah, don't patronize me. Don't the, um, patronize me. Um, but, so, but I do know there's something about a really fancy dress she gets at the beginning. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's is uh, that uh, symbolic of that approval? Because that's yeah, like how people are now seeing it. her. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it, she wears it to please people. And then when she uh, you know, spins around and it catches fire for them, that uh, boosts her approval. It just makes me think because it's like practically a supernatural object. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so. absolutely. And she's um, the the costumes that she wears are all things that she is initially resistant of because they're so uh, alien to her. She doesn't live a life that allows her to wear those things. Yeah. And they, it feels weird to her and she can't understand why people love it so much. But she learns to trust the people around her who know more about it than she does that if she wears them it will make people pay attention to her my name is Sinner Katniss I'm sorry that this happened to you I'm here to help you in any way that I can most people just congratulate me I don't see the point in that so tonight they have the tribute parade I'm going to take you out and show you off to the world so you're here to make me look pretty. I'm here to help you make an impression. Usually they dress people in the clothes from their district. Yeah, we're always coal miners. Yeah, but I don't want to do that. I want to do something that they're going to remember. Did they explain about trying to get sponsors? Yeah, but I'm not very good at making friends. We'll see. Okay, the next one. Oh, is there anyone else on any of these ones we've already done? No, I'm, I've already I'm, talked about three movies that we weren't <laughs> about. So. Yeah, that's quite a lot. Okay, I'm gonna have to let the Hunger Games thing sink in because that would almost put Cinna in more of a mentor position. Honestly, yeah. And if if you if you're Hamish. putting all of that in the bracket of supernatural aid, because it, it comes from all of them in a way, then the crossing of the uh, the first threshold is more her going into the dome itself. Yeah, you can have more than one uh, mentor as well. Mm, yeah, and more than one threshold across. Indeed, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and again, this is this idea of you get small journeys within, 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 and you know each threshold is a significant one. Okay, uh, let's do the next two together because you can. This is the middle bit of any hero's journey, and it can go on for. In the case of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of stuff in the middle between setting out and rounding up. Um, or it can just go on for about 20 minutes in the middle of, of say, Shrek. But um, it's <laughs> the tests, allies, and enemies. 
and that's number one. Oh, sorry, number six. And number seven is the road of trials slash approach and preparation and, in parentheses, meeting with the goddess, which is a fairly frequent occurrence. So anybody on these? Right, just to outline how Campbell's got these laid down, um, these are the first steps in the initiation bracket. Um, So this is after you've descended into the realm of night. You've then got the road of trials, which is the the dangerous aspect of the gods. So these gods who set you out on this journey in the first place, this is where they show you that this is it's going to be dangerous, that things are going to happen that are going to cause you problems. Um, and that's the, the road of trials. And then the meeting with the goddess comes once you've gone through that. But you're absolutely right, depending on the story, the road of trials and, as you say, the meeting with the allies and all that kind of thing can be concertinaed into a montage or it can be stretched out into the bulk of the movie. Yeah, your training montage will be around about here as well. Yeah. Whether it's before or after, um, you really, you know, it, it, it'll be just before you really, really need it. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, school us on this girl. No, you guys have really done our homework. Yeah. Yeah, this is you guys are great. We don't do things um, off. No, it's it's excellent. This is where we often face some of our very first failures of the hero and we really kind of start seeing some of those weaknesses come out is when they're first facing these these initial trials where we see their kind of their shortfallings where where Katniss just really sucks at being a pleasant person to to talk to yeah. uh, with Haymitch during her training um, I'm trying to think of other good little initial small in aliens, it's it's um, like a lot of stops and starts of looking for uh, uh, the the Xenos themselves, and of course, there's the absolute calamity when they uh, go into the, um, the the hive, and uh, that leads to what feels like um, a low point, but then is is far far lower later on when things get a lot worse. Um, in uh, Avatar, it's basically just making you know meeting the Navi, making friends with them, you know, finding a bird, flying it around a bit. Uh, in the Lego movie, it's it's being chased by more cops, being told about the uh, piece of resistance. This is all the the busy work. It's also the way that these heroes' journeys distinguish themselves from the rest of them by like they move pieces around and you can get more stuff done. It it tends to be less significant stuff, but it's what makes them different from each other. If that gets makes any sense. Mm. This as well, I would say, if you're going to have a Mary Sue character this is the point at which it will become apparent that yeah. your character is a Mary Sue because they will cakewalk this road of trials if yeah. they're a Mary Sue. They yeah. won't fail. They won't slip up. They won't show any weakness. They will just easily bat anything that comes at them out of their way. Every ally they meet, they will instantly take to their bosom. Um, every enemy they meet, they will easily dispatch. You won't see any uh, particular conflict. On they the won't road of sweat trials. and everyone will think they're awesome. Absolutely. I haven't mentioned any of New Century yet, but there was a point, Megan, when you actually uh, s- sent me a tweet and said, would you stop being so mean to these characters? <laughs> Because the, uh, you know, I was listening to a lot of uh, writing podcasts and uh, the, uh, they basically said, right, this is the stage where you basically set your characters loads and loads of obstacles. And if they overcome each and every one of them without losing, then they're, what the hell are they fighting for at this yeah, stage? Yeah, that's, that's when the story gets boring. Yeah. That's, this is where you lose interest if it's just too, 
too simple. I mm-hmm. don't care if they can go fight the ultimate evil. They they have no. Of course they can. They have zero. They yeah. have zero flaws. You have an end point, and you have. They've already begun, and you need to put obstacles in the way of that end point, And those obstacles need to bring out their character and get people really invested. Because if it's not, then you're just wasting time. You may as well have a forty-five minute fight sequence. And many directors do. <laughs> and God, I hate those movies. <laughs> but yeah, no, t- tests, uh, yeah, basically are anything that, that challenge the, uh, the, the hero. Allies or anyone who ha- helps them uh, or could be asked to help them. Enemies, anyone who stands in their way. But uh, you know, ultimately, these, these can take any kind of forms. What I'm really hoping is that people sort of can write in some really good hero's journeys that they can put together themselves out of movies that we don't expect, like Office Space. Things that just don't have that same classical hero uh, narrative, but happen to apply neatly to all of these because it can be done. Um, yeah, the, the road of trials is is just sort of an extrapolation of this approach and preparation is basically them becoming aware of what the lar- the bigger thing they have to do that gets laid down. Mm. Well, if you think of the the road of trials and the, the tests that are involved in that of being a case of um, basically trying to find out where the weak spots in your armor are yeah. um, and um, and the approach and preparation is then right okay well these are the things that we need to fix before we can go any further yeah and uh, one of the things I pride myself on in Tiger's Eye is that um, if you were one of the people lucky enough to get into Tiger's Eye as it was going you didn't really know the shape of the story until it had finished so there's a point, and you'll know the point I'm talking about, Megan, um, and probably Lauren as well, that you're thinking, right, okay, I, I, I pretty much know where this is going. Okay, yeah, okay, and then this is going to happen, and then so-and-so. What, what the hell? What? What, what, is, what, what is this? Yeah. And, there's, and then I just yanked the rug out from under everyone. And at the time when I started writing it, I was like, okay, I don't know how long this diversion is going to be. But then that diversion took on a life of its own and it became a larger arc of the Road of Trials and it became its own you know, larger side of the story. And the, one of the best things about Tiger's Eye for me is, is that it's not just Harau going on this, this hero's journey. Uh, that um, I can't even say which ones they are without spoiling it. There are other major characters in there who are all going on their own journeys as well. And in fact, um, not all of them not all of these things that happen to that's supposed to happen to the hero all only happen to Harau or and Harau doesn't experience all of these things. A lot of them are shared and a lot of them are experienced only by one of the major characters. This is where I think as well with the, the allies being met, this is where you see whether the writer is capable of characterizing everybody or at least, you know, your, your team. Is it just the hero who actually gets our here Mm. or can you also see that all of these allies have their own journeys that they're on that actually intersect with the heroes in various ways do those characters have a life of their own well this is where we may also meet our our trickster characters our characters that may seem like an ally but are actually an enemy or may seem like an enemy but end up being an ally Mm -hmm. um where they're allowed to kind of to shine and maybe they are one of our challenges or maybe they provide one of our temptations but uh but eventually change their change their shape change their ways and 
Um, Jet Colonel McEvil in Avatar. You know, he's basically <laughs> the, the guy in charge of it. But it turns out, despite all of his horrible racist rhetoric, that he's actually a super racist. So, and, and he hates <laughs> the thought? Navi and he wants to kill them all. And, and, you know, well, he's unconcerned about killing them all in order to fulfill his uh, mission. So, uh, yeah, that he, he, I suppose, would be the, the loosely trickster character in that film. <laughs> and uh, sure. yeah, finding Nemo. Is there a trickster character in Finding Nemo? Um. Okay, yeah, actually, there is, and it is to do with the belly of the whale. Belly of the whale's a, a, a wonderful kind of metaphorical scenario, which Ooh. in Finding Nemo is literal. literal. <laughs> now it could be that the whale in Finding Nemo has no idea what's going on, swallowed them by accident, and then spouts them out at the exact right, perfect moment. Or it could be that the whale is helping them and is talking to Dory when she talks, would you deliver us? And actually, uh, and, and helps them. But uh, either way, he appears to be a, a, a massive obstacle, but turns out to be a massive help, whether through accident or intent. Um, yeah. Thor. Is there a trickster in Thor who you think <laughs> is actually an ally that turns out to be a villain? The trickster is. is in Thor. <laughs> I think you'll find it hard to forget about me. Yeah. yeah. Which, uh, it's just so not the Loki of of mythology in some ways. Mm-hmm. Because really, in in most of Nora's mythology, he really doesn't have a whole lot of malicious intent up until we get towards Ragnarok. He's just kind of... I actually thought you were saying Fraggle Rock there. Yes. <laughs> up until Sorry. we get to Fraggle Rock, Loki, <laughs> is, is, he's just good friends with the trash heap, and sometimes... <laughs> and the then it's just the doozers making go crazy, man. Well, as, Fand- as Fandrell <laughs> said, after a thousand years of knowing him, Loki's always been one for mischief. <laughs> in other words, he's as mad as a bag of cats. There's a trickster in Aliens in the shape of Burke, and who would have suspected the evil businessman? <laughs> It's kind of like James Cameron wears his colors on his sleeve in that regard. There is there is a reverse kind of trickster in Aliens as well in the form of Bishop because yeah. from the first movie she assumes that he's going to turn evil because androids can't be trusted but yeah. then he ends up being her greatest ally by yeah. the end. And maybe another the closer equivalent to a mentor, he's the one who can give her the perspective because he's not terrified for his own life. Well, and tricksters yeah. don't always have to turn evil. It's more of a I feel like shape. I feel like trickster is kind of giving it a bad name. More, maybe more shapeshifter is. It's a good way of surprising the audience. It's very important to surprise them because if they're going right, well, this is going to be this, then they kind of have to plod through the book rather than going. Oh, I mean, if we look at the Matrix, it's a, a mustache guy whose name I just completely spaced on. Joey Pants. Oh my goodness! Mustache guy. His name is Cipher. <laughs> you philistine. I'm so sorry. Whoa. Like, mustache Neo, guy. You scared the bejesus out of me. Get it? Neo's Jesus. That's not a heavy handed film, though. <laughs> I'm surprised they could lift the pen to write it with how heavy their hand was. <laughs> we saw a music video the other day. Oh, you know what? I'll save it for the, for the Matrix show. But uh, folks who've seen this music video know exactly what I'm talking about red pill, blue pill. Um, okay. <laughs> I have not seen this, and I'll have to go find it later. Uh, I'll, I'll let you guys uh, check it out uh, in the backstage area. 
that sounds wrong. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, right. So they go through all these trials. They get their uh, allies. You get your, your Han Solo types uh, you, uh, and, and the people who will help you along. And, and usually everyone that they meet has some use, I suppose, in the Matrix. What was the main use of APOC? Uh, ballast? Yeah, he was the guy with the ponytail who got killed first, <laughs> right? Oh, no, see, it was Mouse I mean, who got killed first, sorry. You do just need to have allies that you can just off. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, all the dead meat characters just increase the tension and the stakes. Switch, you have a fairly severe-looking sort of like Annie Lennox thing going on, and you don't say much. Bye. <laughs> Not like this. Well, Not like this. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes there's a nice illustration of how how evil the the evil is yeah, is yeah. having allies that then cock. that maybe are likable but are easily yeah uh, a, dismissed. Cu- couple in Tiger's Eye, he wasn't easily dis- they, they weren't easily dismissed, but um, there, there are some deaths in Tiger's Eye which are um, there to remind you that there are huge stakes in this. Uh Let's see. Any more in... Oh, yeah. Meeting the goddess. Right. Now, was there a sort of a goddess-type character in, let's say, Lord of the Rings? Was there sort of a, a fairly important, very powerful <laughs> female in Lord of the Rings? Well, yeah, obviously, obviously the Balrog was... Oh. I mean, I, I don't know oh, if yeah. anybody else you knew, oh, my sir. But um, actually, that we found repeatedly when we were looking in this that you might meet a goddess who's like a, a, a very benevolent white uh, woman who's who's there to... <laughs> um, very benevolent... <laughs> A very uh, light-oriented uh, woman uh, who is there to help you, um, but there's also frequent times when you will meet the dark goddess. So, for example, in Sword in the Stone, Madame Mim is the uh, the dark goddess. She's there. She's the flip side of Merlin. She's selfish and she's everything that Arthur shouldn't be, and she victimizes him. And immediately, it, it falls to Merlin to uh, take part in a wizard duel to get rid of him. And, and Lord of the Rings, obviously, there is go for it. Well, Galadriel's the one that you were fishing for. You don't say. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the, the female Dark Goddess, aside from the fact that uh, Galadriel plays um, Dark Galadriel herself, is Shelob. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, just so, uh, so it's usually a being of immense power who is female. The, um, the meeting with the goddess as well, and, and this is something, this is the most Freudian bit mm-hmm. of yeah, clearly um of this whole um this whole structure but the the meeting with the goddess and um what's referred to as um woman as the temptress mm. although i think or squirrel as the, the temptress in the case of sort of well stuff. indeed i think <laughs> some of the some of the examples that we were looking at um in the the videos earlier today they separate them out but in actual fact they are two parts of the same process um and the the meeting with the goddess is usually and again it can be quite brief um, but it's a moment of respite from the trials, and it's it's the uh, the idea that you you meet. It doesn't even have to be a literal woman, although it often is. Um, but in um, 
Prince Caspian, which we were watching yesterday, there's a moment where Lucy wanders away from the campfire and into the woods of Narnia. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the first time that she's really been able to see the Narnia that she remembers. Um, and she sees the uh, the form of the petals go right. into the, the shape of the dryad. Um, and it's it's the whole of Narnia is the goddess at that point, this natural world that's there to embrace her and, and make her feel safe. Um, and what that represented, according to Campbell, and again, like I say, he's taking this as a very Freudian perspective, that what the hero is seeking at this stage is the bliss of regaining infancy. It's the idea that you can, at this stage, you can lay down your arms, you can rest, you can relax, you will be nurtured, you'll be held, you'll be comforted, you'll be cared for, and you won't have to work so hard to get through this. That gives astonishing scope to uh, Into the West, by the way. Yeah, And the fact absolutely. that it comes from Galadriel's perspective. From Galadriel, yeah, exactly. Um, and how that then um, flips over into the woman as temptress is that um, the... Right. In terms of infant development, again, from the Freudian perspective, is that when you are a very, very tiny child, your mother is your whole world. Um, and the the idea that there is the just this immense being that will provide you with everything that you need for the rest of your existence. And there comes a point, um, whether it's pre-conscious or conscious, where you realize she can't always be there. And that's where you get this, um, this kind of uh, bright mother, dark mother split, that you've got this wonderful mother who loves you and will feed you, and then you've got the mother who happened to be in the other room when you were hungry. And that's the mother that for a moment you hate. And that's where you get this kind of, um, you know, she's evil, she's a temptress, she lied, she said she'd always look after me and now she isn't doing for this, you know, brief three seconds that seems like an eternity when you're two months old. Um, but the that, that moment... That explains quite a bit of toxic masculinity on the internet right now. Oh, hells yeah, it's in <laughs> that phase. These people need to go on hero's journeys, by the way, so they can complete these cycles and get out of that loop. Um, but the... <laughs> Um, the the flip. I should from... appoint myself as door kicker outer. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the flip from sort of having this this momentary bliss to realizing that actually you can't dwell in that frozen state forever. You do have to move forward, um, and the there's an agony in that that the your desire for rejoining with your mother can never be realized. That can't happen, and it actually would be really flipping and healthy for it to happen yeah. um, that you have to progress forwards mm. and and that as i say is is there's the weight is not always equal in in stories sometimes when they meet the goddess she seems evil and and um and manipulative and deceptive from the word go and that will often have to do with the the character's perspective on um, their their life in general. You know, if they've had a very hard upbringing, they may never get um, that, uh, or they may not they may not recognise that moment of rest and, and bliss when it happens. It, it might be so brief, even just a, a second of thinking, I can breathe. Oh shit! No, I can't. There's this great hag in front of me that's now going to kill me, or you know. Mm. But a lot of it has to do with the perceptions that you bring and how you treat that character when you come across them. So if we're talking Hunger Games, does that make Rue our goddess and our, our temptress? She provides that kind of safety of, of home and having her sister and having, having that back together. Mm, I would say she does, because if you think of, of um, Prim, 
who is uh, Katniss's actual sister, as being representative of that that safety and that comfort, and Rue being her metaphorical sister in that brief moment. It's not for her. It's not a literal mother. And again, that that kind of goes back to if you look at her setup, her mother is not a place of safety for her. No. Uh, aliens. Who's the goddess in that? Who is the twisted mother? The like Ripley is trying to be a mother, and who is the twisted mother? Who is the opposite of that? Who she ends up contending herself up against? I kind of spoiled it there. Uh, obviously, the queen. <laughs> yeah, the queen. The, this being of awesome power. There's even a point of accord between the two of them where it seems like the queen might let her go with her one child in return for Ripley not destroying the queen's children. But then Ripley realizes she was going to you know, have the face huggers chase them anyway and realizes that she was the trickster after all. And so see, she destroys the eggs and see, earns I, her wrath. I would say in that example, um, finding and caring for um, Newt is Ripley's moment of infancy regained if you like but it's not it's not her infancy it's yeah. it's being able to take that mother role back herself and again this is one of the places where um a a male hero's journey and a female hero's journey are often portrayed quite differently um and the this point whereas in a uh, a male oriented story it's often about overcoming this this seductive bliss that you are going to have to break out of and, and move forward from for a, a female oriented story it's often framed in a way that this is a part of you that you are going to have to reconcile with that this um this comforting mother and the uh, the tempting and deceptive mother are both parts of you and you're going to have to come to terms with that before you can move forward. Speaking of Sigourney Weaver, in Avatar, it's Yawa herself The uh, when when uh, gr- they attempt to move Grace from one body to the other and you get uh, a, 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 an a, a encounter with the goddess that is the planet itself, much like Narnia being uh, a feminine energy. This is the Mother Earth of Pandora. And in fact, um, in uh, Extra Credit's interpretation of this, um, Dan Floyd talked about his his way of looking at this as not necessarily being woman as temptress, but physical as temptress yeah. and the physical world. If you bear in mind that the word matter um, comes from the same root as the word, as the Latin for mother, the... the um, the physical world that gives you shape is in its own way there to mm. hold you back from your spiritual journey that you're going on. And physical as temptress was what got Cypher in the Matrix. He wanted to go back to a world of earthly pleasures and stake. And, uh, yeah. and he, he wanted to reject the, uh, the world that he'd been pushed into, which he didn't like. He didn't like the misery of it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Tiger's Eye, Lauren and Megan, any uh, particular enormous important goddess type characters that have a profound effect on one or more of our heroes no can't think of one at all ah damn it (laughs) (laughs) totally blew it on that one man not that i can offer without spoilers i don't want to okay the the widow beneath the waves is who i was actually thinking of um and specifically uh it's 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 more it's you know she has a profound effect on her but also someone else uh that uh um that, that begins to change their worldview. Ooh, Lego Movie doesn't really have one, does it? It's uh, unless it, unless it's kind of Uni Kitty. Um, I think yeah, you could argue that um, that that when they first arrive in 
cloud cuckoo land. It's heaven and she's the goddess. She's the only person showing them around. They they have a moment of respite from being pursued, but then Mm. you can't. It breaks. She also lays down all the rules. Like There's there's no frowny faces. Mm -hmm. There's also no consistency. Um, find and his... that that is the breaking point between the bright mother and the dark mother when the child realises there's mm. a lack of consistency here. And Unikitty is both bright and dark mother. Well, they'll never, ever, 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 ever find you. Because <laughs> <laughs> she, she does possess awesome power. When she hulks out, she's in, in, incredibly powerful. So, um, But you know, she takes the form of an ally, which occasionally can happen. Um, finding Nemo... That's... Is Dory the goddess? No. Mm. No? I don't think so. I don't no. say that their moment of respite is their time with, with Crush. Yeah. With... Being mentored, but uh, unless... Hmm. Nope. Not that I can think. Unless <gasps> the dark goddess. Fishy! Why are you sleeping? This incredibly powerful oh, being who holds the power of life and death over Nemo. I mean, she is more our shadow character. She is more yeah. our, Ooh, our, actually, ultimate, our yeah. ultimate challenge. Can I pause for a moment? Because now might be a time to talk about the shadow. Because we're about to get to the reward. But uh, but we Maybe need to we also, also start exploring shadow. Oh, hang on. What have we, what else, have there's got, a couple, there's sorry, a couple sorry, more steps no, in Campbell's yep, Sorry, sorry. sorry the central we, ordeal. I've we start having rewards. Bear with me. Hold on. Hold on. Let's hold the shadow back for a moment. Okay. You've you've got the atonement with the father first as well oh, in okay. Campbell's structure. So the ne- this is great, by the way. This is one of the best shows we've ever done. It, the fact that we just sort of immediately settled into it without the sort of well, what are we talking about? Because you're just <laughs> raring to go, and we all know what the f- we're talking about, which is great. Yay. Okay. Um, so the next part is the central ordeal, which doesn't necessarily mean the main thing they have to deal with, um, which uh, also twins in with. Often, the darkest cave and the belly of the whale. Megan, do you want to school us on this one? Because it does actually require some description. So this is kind of the the ultimate challenge. This is the big, the the big bad thing that we come up against, which we also face with the hero's own. There's often kind of a death and rebirth with the hero here as well, where they they the first time they come up against this, they fail completely, and they either die or they experience some kind of emotional emotional death where they I, I, I hate to talk Star Wars uh, with this since we've 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 kind of hit it anyway. Um, their kind of first encounter with the Death Star where they're um. Oh, well, Alderaan is destroyed. No, even before where they're where they're first on the Death Star and they're rescuing Princess Leia. And Alderaan's destroyed before then. But well, that's yeah, Alderaan's destroyed that, before that's then. That's the uh, cut the dark cave for Leia, most definitely. But uh, it's not supposed to be for Luke. But carry on. Well, this is where we 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 lose our mentor. We we mm. lose our we have our kind of first major our sacrifice where we have have lost something major to the hero. Yeah. And that we have to return to later and reconquer as we're reborn again as the hero. Yeah, Luke's with darkest a little bit- cave is is uh, is uh, well, it's it's doubly it's it's uh, it's losing Ben there, and then he goes to a literal darkest literal cave dark cave in Empire uh, to face his greatest fear. Continue, sorry. So, oh no, that's kind of where I, 
I, I figured that was a good point of, of discussion is this kind of death and rebirth of the hero and their multiple facings yeah. of this kind of horrible big bad if you if you take it as that in their the dark ma- cave in the matrix neo literally dies and is reborn and that's actually way later it's our, it's it's on the road back home where occasionally this this will happen near the end if their resurrection it requires them to become a godlike being for the end then it's very appropriate that it takes place um you know where there's not there's nothing else left to do because they trounce it with their incredible godlike powers <laughs> um but uh, but yeah the uh um the darkest uh, the 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 darkest point for um, Emmett is uh, is allowing himself to fall into the real world, which is a third plane of existence for him. He's lived in the city all his life, then he goes out into the real world, and then it turns out that that's just one of the real worlds because the real world is outside that, and um, he effectively dies to the Lego world. He's out. He's off the game table, mm-hmm. and um, he becomes effectively as well inanimate while he's out there. He is a corpse and he has to somehow will this is crazy stuff. He has to somehow will his soul back into the little Lego piece and acquire agency whilst outside his own form of existence. I think that's even mirrored in Interstellar for a certain for a certain way. But I think mm-hmm. it's um it's interesting, or it should be important to note that it's not just rebirth. The specific word that Campbell uses is is apotheosis, yeah, which is a mm-hmm. Greek word meaning to be deified, and the process usually means uh, is death and then rebirth as a heavenly being. Uh, a a good example that I'm surprised we haven't even mentioned yet is in Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. That movie really follows oh. the hero's journey. You'll think of something, right? Like you always do. Didn't you hear him? The prophecy's made up. I'm not the special. To think for a moment I thought I might be. Emmett. Who said that? I did. I am Ghost Vitruvius. (laughs) Emmett, you didn't let me finish earlier. Because I died. The reason I made him the prophecy was because I knew that whoever found the peace could become the special. Because the only thing anyone needs to be special is to believe that you can be. I know that sounds like a cat poster, but it's true. Look at what you did when you believed you were special. You just need to believe it some more. But how can I just decide to believe that I'm special when I'm not? Because the world depends on it. Seven, termination. In 35, Mississippi. What? 34, Mississippi. Emmett! What are you... Lucy! Wait, wait, what are you... What are you... Now it's your turn to be the hero. See you later, alligator. Don't! No! Limit! Six, Mississippi. Five, Mississippi. Four, Mississippi. Three, Mississippi. Two, Mississippi. One, Mississippi. Zero, Mississippi. Termination, failure.
Mm. But yeah, but that would be the apotheosis for uh, Emmett in the yeah. Lego movie because he is kind of torn from his own reality and he gains some kind of ability that you wouldn't expect. I mean, he, he's a hunk of plastic in the quote unquote real world, but he still moves and rattles about and like gets that agency, gets the attention of, of the kid. And um, it, that's his apotheosis moment. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a small phase as well in Campbell's outline that comes between the, the goddess and the apotheosis, and that's what he refers to as the atonement with the father. Um, now, again, this is from a very Freudian um, psychological development perspective. But I think what he's looking at there is the idea that having accepted that you cannot rejoin with the mother again, um, you have a moment where you basically you're resolving the Oedipal com- uh, conflict, that the uh, the residual guilt that you have for being angry at your father for having your mother's attention when you wanted it this is your moment to not exactly apologize for that, but resolve it in some way. And I think that leads into the apotheosis because by, by accepting that, um, that this demand that you had in your tiny child mind was not something that could ever come to be. And so the anger that you felt at being denied it was also not, not acceptable because it's, it's normal for small children, um, but is not, a healthy way to move forward and letting go of that is what then allows you to move into the death and rebirth phase. So I guess going into the other movies, the, uh, Oh, do you have something else, Megan? No, I was just actually looking through my copy of here with thousand faces. And I, I, I was looking through the atonement with the father and it's on that kind of Oedipal piece. He talks about letting go of your, your, the culminating instruction of the long series of rites is the release of the boy's own hero penis from the protection of its foreskin. Oh, hello. <laughs> the frightening and painful attack upon it of the circumciser. So, so did releasing- Freud write this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounds like well, Freud. He's, if, he's, if he's specifically talking about rites of passage, the, you know, the passage into manhood is one of the, okay. the key Could ones. said um, apotheosis and reconciliation with, or, uh, sorry, atonement with the father be, rather than an attack on the foreskin be an attack on the hand where that is cut off and then um, yes. you have your whole world yanked out from under you and then when Luke falls in a, the end of Empire, he becomes beatific, he is saint-like, he is doing so uh, because he's basically been offered the chance of um, helping to control the universe with his father and he would rather die at that point and so he mm-hmm. just gives himself up to fate and lets himself drop and that's his, although he's already been through the darkest cave, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a symbolic metaphor for what he's about to come up against. Mm. And in Finding Nemo, they are in a literal belly of a whale. <laughs> Which is when Marlon absolutely gives up. He, he, you know, he, he just, he, his frustration comes to a boiling point. He explodes and screams. And then he's, you know, says, that, you know, you think you can do these things, but you just can't Nemo at Dory. And then, it becomes clear what his journey is all about. Mm. How do they get out of the whale? By talking to it? No, no, no. As in literally, trust, trusting by, Dory? What, by what means are they oh, right. expelled from yeah. the whale? Well, with water, but uh, he has to give up. He has to let himself drop. She has to say, you've got to trust me on this and just let yourself drop into the whale's blow 
pipe. Yeah, but specifically they come up through a passage surrounded by water. They are born out of the whale's blowhole. Which which is also a lifting up in the elevation uh, metaphor for apotheosis. Mm. He is lifted up to the the, the fish heaven. And similarly, (laughs) well, somewhat similarly, in Aliens, after... um, Ripley kind of christens herself anew in fire by burning the eggs. Her apotheosis is actually that elevator ride yeah. back up to the shuttle with the queen coming after. Actually, her saint-like apotheosis comes at the end of it in Alien 3, where she is again, as with Luke, tempted by, uh, um, you know, we can, we can give you life, we can get rid of this for you, you can be normal again. And she knows that it's an, yet another trickster, this time taking the form of the trickster who turned out to be good the first time round. And uh, so she decides to herself, no, I've, I've got this thing has got to die. And for that, I've got to pay the ultimate sacrifice. Well, really, that's more the temptation and her apotheosis from that would be the fourth Aliens movie where the trickster is whoever thought that movie was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, those tricksters of fox. Indeed. It just occurred to me, actually, and this is probably something that other people are going to slap their foreheads and go, well, duh. Um, But I was thinking that the the rebirth and the the deification, the difference between that and actual birth is that in actual birth, you're coming down, and in this, you're going up. But if you think about it, when you are in the womb and surrounded by water, there is no up, no down. And generally speaking, if you're coming head first, as far as the infant is concerned that's up in in the sword and the stone there is no apotheosis there is no central uh challenge for the hero there's he just goes to look for a sword for his brother and then finds it the end um it's it's such an incredibly lame version of the arthur myth that really needs reevaluation. there's nothing for arthur to do in that film it does happen, but it's so tiny. Yeah. It's it's then when he's um, he's in the castle, he has the atonement with the father in, in terms of the conflict with his stepfather, um, and they have the big fight, and he basically says, right, that's it, you're not coming to London with us, you're not Kay's squire anymore. Yeah. And he ends up sitting in the kitchen with his head in his hands, feeling like everything's for naught. Yeah. Um, and then the rebirth is basically Merlin patting him on the shoulder and going, hey, you know what, never mind, here's a massive pile of books for you. Yeah. Which ultimately, the the thing that Merlin's been trying to give him the whole time is knowledge. It's the wisdom to be a king. And he's been trying to impart it to this clod. (laughs) Indeed. And that is the next step, which is the ultimate boon. Yeah. So, so what is the ultimate boon? Oh, hang on. Uh, I wish we even have forgotten. What, the apotheosis and the, the, the death and rebirth in the Hunger Games, I suppose it's, um, the death and rebirth has to be the Nightlock sequence at the end of the first film. Hmm. I think that's uh, no. I think Peter's brush with death and Katniss coming out of it to be uh, absolutely to be managing to maintain their popularity. Yeah, they're in the cave. Everything's internalized. They have to make choices and decisions to (laughs) come out again. Darkest cave. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that kind of giving into the okay, I know what they want, and Mm. and how to how to maintain that popularity is by being affectionate with this mm. poor dying boy that maybe I'd actually like to be affectionate with. And in Avatar, uh, Jake Sully um, literally dies in his reborn as a Navi at the end, but his actual death and rebirth comes when he is disgraced by the Navi and cast out uh, because he dies to their tribe and he also dies to the tribe of humans. They don't want him either. So he has to um, 
he has to redefine his world by gaining trust with both uh, the human allies and the Navi. Yeah. And he does that by being the best Navi who ever lived. <laughs> because he was a white Johnny template man, which gives him the power to be the best. <laughs> and in Thor, oh, God, I love Thor. Um, it's ultimately just deciding, look, this is a crappy little Mexican town. This giant robot thing is here to kill me and only me. I've already seen explosions up the yin-yang. My friends are getting hurt. Um, all of these humans are in severe danger. I've just worked out that I really don't matter that much in the grander scheme of things and just end this Loki. And it's, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a very simple awakening and going from being selfish to, to being selfless. And it's not 100% selfless and it's not 100% selfish. It's just a, a swing of the seesaw, which has been slowly happening thanks to the new allies he's made and the new perspective he has on the universe. And it's a wonderful moment of death and rebirth that just makes me air punch every time. And it's worth bearing in mind as well that that apotheosis, when there is a, a, a figurative death and rebirth involved in the story, is triggered by a moment of self-sacrifice. And whether that comes because they're at their lowest point and they just think, you know what, I can't do this anymore and lay down, or whether it's because they think something has to be sacrificed here, it had better be me. Um, it's one of the reasons why I get quite frustrated when they get to this point and the hero decides to sacrifice somebody else. Yeah. What? The, what when's that? Um, Mass well, Effect? Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> occasionally, um, depending on how you're playing the game. You go. You're one of the two most boring characters. <laughs> well, this is this is one of the reasons why I get frustrated with people who complain about the end of Mass Effect because it's like, if you're complaining about that, I'm sorry, you were playing it wrong. Um, but um, but no, the the one that I was um, I was specifically thinking of was uh, Trinity mm. in in the the later Matrix because uh, yes, all right, you Matrices. can see that. Well, yes, indeed, oh. you you can interpret that that um, from on her own journey she sacrifices herself. But Twice. ultimately, if we're looking at Neo's journey, she's the golden calf at this point. Yeah. Oui. <sighs> um, Finding Nemo actually has another because uh, um, because Nemo's on his own journey as well. His death comes when he's uh, flipped out into the, uh, uh, the the air and then uh, Marlon thinks he's dead. And then his actual rebirth comes when they're trapped in the fishing net and he uses the tools. He's he Basically, he's learned that if they swim together all at the same time, they can actually change the balance for themselves. And he teaches that to the fish. And, uh, be, you know, because he's gone through his journey, he is able to come out alive and bring everyone else out of that as well. And that is the, the ultimate boom. That's the next step. That is the thing mm -hmm. that you bring with you out of death and rebirth that you were looking for, maybe didn't realise you were looking for in the first place. This is the thing that you are going to take home mm -hmm. to rejuvenate your your village or wherever it is you're going back to. So have we already crossed into number nine, the reward yet? Yes, the ultimate boom yeah. is, is the reward. Okay. Yeah. Now, a lot of the time in bad... Uh, hero's journey films they stop right there because like the the villain is pun is done and they're like right well, we, we don't want people to get butt numb at this point so let's just say off you go to the car park that was your film that was your story it finishes right there he got what he wanted or she got what she wanted um yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that all films that just sort of finish there um are are bad 
but like at the end of uh, Welcome to the Jungle or, or the Rundown, it doesn't actually end with um, Christopher Walken uh, getting shot. It actually ends when they test their friendship and find that it actually can succeed in the real world. Mm. But this is your and they all lived happily ever after. And what it basically means <laughs> mm-hmm. is we couldn't think of anything else to do. And it doesn't have to be complex. That's the frustrating thing. The whole last section of the return where you take what you learned through the initiation and you bring it back home again. And then you have to get used to being in back in your, your home environment or, or move on to your new normal, like we said about the, the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy. But you you can make that bit really brief, but it kind of has to happen. Otherwise, your story doesn't really close. Mm. So so talking about how some terrible movies just kind of end here, uh, for whatever reason, the first movie I thought of was actually Doom. (laughs) Um, Because I mentioned The Rock. No, oh, it may be. No, I think... I literally have no idea why I was thinking about that movie. There's no right. Oh, there's for no anybody. reason to ever think about it. Yeah, um, but <laughs> the, but like the ordeal and the apotheosis is all about in that movie is like the first person shooter sequence, the the rock fight, the big super space wrestling match on Mars, and then super the rock space gets, wrestling match on Mars, and then the the rock and uh, the teleporter gets blown up real good, and then the movie just ends. It's just kind of like, we did it. And, you know, um, whatever the hell his name is and his sister, like, we survived. I mean, John Template, I believe his name is. Uh, he actually has a really stupid name. It's John it's, um, No, it's Grimm because his call sign is a Reaper. Uh, it's John uh, Grimm. God, why do I know this? Okay. But there's yeah. no road There's no road back resurrection or there's, there's none of that return part in that movie it just ends after the reward where they're like sigh of relief and that's just the end of it and the the reward at the end of aliens would be we got newt back to the ship and she's safe and that's great and there's no reason to drop to not drop our guard at this point because there's nothing we could possibly have brought back from the planet which might possibly bite us in the ass literally uh, and in uh, Finding Nemo, I suppose it's it's like they do get out with Nemo, but then they they get caught again, and they need they get finally tested, and that's technically their road home because it requires a lot of the time the road home sequence isn't necessarily a literal road home. It's just right now, what have we learned? And in the Hunger Games, the road home is effectively because um, they they they've won the Hunger Games, but then they when they they start to return home, it's a case of uneasy. Okay, you've won this, but you've started a war. I'd say part of that is because it's an arc, it's the starting arc in a longer sequence. Yeah. Um, but also, I think the 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 road home in this smaller journey of just the first movie is is the final sequence where the the final winner is decided. Yeah. Well, and part of the road home isn't always that the home you're going back to is the same home that you left. It's not always going to be the exact the exact way that you left it and you're not always coming back to it in the same way that um, and if you did the hero's journey right you're not coming back to it in the same way that you left yeah. it a lot of the time it's just a bit of returning to some semblance of normality but with you know what you've learned you're you're sort of bringing it back to a new upgraded version of uh, square one mm. and the the 
first step that Campbell outlines um, is, in, in fact, there's two that you can put together. There's the refusal of the return, which is a, a denial of the the real world and the not wanting to go back, the wanting to maintain this state of everything being magical and you being incredibly strong because of everything that you've learned and not wanting to give that up. And I think this is one of the reasons why it frustrates me when stories do finish after the reward, um, because it's, it's like, right, okay, we are now going to stay here forever in hero land and you can't i happen to be a hero exactly you you can't hold your breath for the rest of your life sooner or later you're going to have to breathe out this is a cycle um and then that by the way that that, was from uh, hercules which is a really good hero's journey film it is it is an excellent example um 1997 disney hercules not all of the other (laughs) many hercules (laughs) especially more recent interpretations yes um the one the one with much more catchy songs. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and then that leads into what Campbell refers to as the magic flight, um, which is the escape from the gods. And often that will happen because the the hero has refused to return. So basically, the gods turn up and go, "No, you can't stay here." Mm. And he has to run away from them because it's like, "Well, if you are going to stay here, then fine, but we're going to tie you to a rock and set eagles on you every day for the rest of eternity." Luke's road back home is, uh, he can't go back to the Lars homestead anymore, so his new home has to be wherever Leia is. It's mm. unspoken, but basically he's now a rebel for life, and uh, he's... so he's a can great go, tattoo. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> going back to uh, Yavin, the moon of Yavin 4 is his, his new going back home. In the Matrix, Neo literally has to run home uh, whilst being chased by uh, agents. Mm. Uh, in the Lego movie... Uh, Emmett is returned to the uh, the board, if, effectively. In uh, Thor, he goes back on the Rainbow Road to his, to deal with his brother, to take responsibility for the man that even Odin wouldn't take responsibility for. And to, to thus, uh, that ironically, no, it's actually quite good. That it, it's, uh, it's atonement with the father because he's doing what Odin could not, even though he also reaches out to take Loki's hand in a way that I'm not sure Odin necessarily would have done, mm. even you know after this disgraceful behaviour and genocide. Yeah, and the the sword in the stone version is again very tiny, mm. but it's there. Um, you've it's got so small. It's so small. Um, you've got War not wanting to having had even his squire status stripped away from him, not wanting to go back to the normal everyday world of being a kitchen boy. Mm. Um, he ends up as a bird flying away literal flight straight into the clutches of mim and then gets into a big battle that he in no way has the tools to deal with um and then he has that leads him on to the next step which is rescue from without and that's the uh, the intercession of a bigger force than you even as your new hero role aren't strong enough to deal with you need something bigger than you to to help you get out of this mm. place when you said magic flight, all I could think of was Falcor and the Neverending Story. Yeah, which is so. Which I'm not quite sure we haven't brought that movie up at all because it's a really. <laughs> well, let, let's do it. Like, let's do but, like a, a proof of concept for the folks. Just a really quick fire, Neverending Story, twelve steps, just so that uh, you folks can see how easy it is to do this. The ordinary world is Bastion's world, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I've read all the books. I've read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and The uh, Idols of the King and Flight of Dragons. And uh, then there's The Call to Adventure, which is uh, basically, oh, look, Fantasia itself, the book of the never-ending story, is a call to adventure. He, ooh, rather than refusing or denial, denial of the call, he takes the book. So that's kind of a subversion. But uh, there's still – so as we were talking about before, refusal can be in a lot of ways. Mm. So doesn't he – he kind of steals the book and then like hides away to read it? Yeah. He so he's almost it. like he, shameful yeah. about the acts that he's done yeah. where it's like he, he can't um, run away from it, but he's hiding it from everybody else. Because like he's hiding refusal. from his father at this point as well. He's had, he's had a fight with his father. And he, like, I think he's not getting on with his father. Like, it's been a while since I saw it. But uh, he's he specifically – he, he's angry at his father because his mother died and his father seems to have moved on more than he has. It's all very subtle. <laughs> that stage is oh. going to be interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, so that's the refusal. Meeting with the mentor would be, I'm, I'm assuming, the because it's difficult because it gets subdivided. Bastion become, uses uh, Treyu as his avatar. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, technically him meeting the guy in the bookshop, that's his mentor. But at the same time, Atreyu meets, like... Um, the old turtle, mm-hmm. and I mean she's the goddess, but also, I mean, is she? Who's the one who's the, supposed to tell him about the world? Oh my god, it's not the Gamork, is it? It kind of just throws it at you, but yeah, it's. I mean, it's uh. it's so quick on exposition. Like, there's so many characters saying what's going on in the world that Atreyu <laughs> doesn't need to be told anything because <laughs> we, the audience, all know it because everyone's monologuing. Yeah. Um, then crossing the threshold would be when Bastion like starts to interject himself, well, just starts to put himself into the book to become a Treyu. Test as an enemy is just the stuff in the middle. Word of Trials approach, me- meeting the goddess would be the, oh, well, there's two. First off, there's the false goddess, which is the turtle who has no good help for him. Uh, she's supposed to be the wise woman who helps him out. She doesn't help him at all. Then um, doesn't he meet some kind of... The... Um... Well, the childlike empress is, is about as goddessy as you can get. Yeah. And she's the one who basically tells Bastion the, the, the secret of what's going on here. Um, the darkest cave is, of course, when the nothing wipes out everything. Uh, and uh, the reward is that um, Fantasia comes back and then it rushes through to the world back home because fa- suddenly um, Bastion's on Falcor going, Yeah! Because all it takes is for children to imagine with the power of books. Mm-hmm. Isn't it weird when yes. films tell you how great books are? It's like I've never seen a book tell you how great films are unless yeah. it's a factual book. Yeah. It it pretty well rushes him to the uh, the master of two worlds. Yeah, where he's 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 holds he holds mastery in both. And he uses his new luck dragon to bully bullies. Exactly. Now you're in a smelly dumpster, bullies. Yeah, it's the freedom to live, man. Yeah, and atonement with the father. Does he do that with his father? I can't remember, but I think it seems it, like, yeah, folks, right in. Well, when we, yeah, uh, basically, he's going to stop being quite so freaked out at that his dad is beginning to move on from the death of his mother. I would and, say that's resolution of a sort. Oh yeah, and the fact that he actually has to call out her name for the childlike empress so she can have a name in a kind of weird, twisted, um, uh, just like just confront it. She's now gone, Bastion. You can yeah. move on. So that's his resolution of his anger that he's he can't have his <laughs> mother back. And return with the Alexia or journey out. 
this is the last stage we haven't really uh, um, talked about yet, because you can either return with the elixir, which is almost always, rather than it being, I've got a thing which will heal the world. The idea being that the world to begin with was kind of broken, and then you bring back something which basically heals it. Or it could just be that you aren't comfortable in the world, but what you bring back from what you've learned makes you more comfortable in your own skin back in your own home. Or journey out, where you carry on going outwards and you make a, a new home and bring about a new status quo, like Luke, wherein you find a new home with new people, which is another well, way of looking at this it. This is, you've, you've got the crossing of the return threshold. is it's, it's phrased as the return to the world of common day. But again, that's either a return to the home you left or it's uh, moving forward to your new normal, your, your new home becoming wherever you are now. Ah, that's the central fallacy. Because at the end of uh, a never-ending story, it goes, and then Bastion went on and had many adventures, even though he didn't need to. He'd already been on his hero's journey. <laughs> Just carried on and on and on. And well, on. that's the that's thing with the, the hero's journey, is, is yeah. you can have it more than once. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, that's, You can have it once for each personality trait you want to fix. That <laughs> is a very good lead-on to the biggest question. Why? Why do we tell ourselves this over and over again? Why are we endlessly fascinated with this specific story? So before we go into that, can I bring up another uh, proof of concept that I've been chewing over while we've been talking about all this for another story? So um, have any of you read The Shadow Out of Innsmouth or The Shadow Over Innsmouth? I can't remember exactly the word. Nope. No, I, I don't think so. Now, granted, this story is like 90 plus years old and I'm going – it's not really spoiling it if you know anything about the man's fiction. But it follows this this sequence like so perfectly in such a dark way that it's – I feel like it's worth mentioning because The Ordinary World is at the very beginning of the story. The main character is just living in a normal like everyday 1920s world. Uh, he is given a hint of a mystery in this seaside town in New England. That's his call to adventure. And he immediately refuses that there's anything mysterious going on, but he's a, like a journalist or something, so he's going to go and check it out. Uh, so, but he doesn't believe the stories. He doesn't believe the mystery. He doesn't believe that it's an adventure. He's just, he's just doing his job. Uh, the meeting with the mentors, actually, he meets with a drunk who knows this, the truth of what's going on in Innsmouth. And tells him like no the mystery is a real thing he kind of is a little unsettled by that and his crossing of the threshold into the special world is when he goes to the inn now anybody who knows what i'm talking about anybody who's read this story is going to go wow okay that does actually make sense because at the inn is where he gets attacked by all the inhabitants of the town that night as his tests and his trials the innermost cave is when he actually approaches the temple that all of the mutant pe- monster people are like kind of pouring out from. The ordeal is whenever he confronts the head of, in this case, the esoteric order of Dagon, and his reward is getting it, being able to live and go out back to the world, uh, but with the knowledge that he is actually from that town, and the town itself is his eventual future because then he goes through a dark apotheosis to become one of the monsters that was attacking him before and his road back is actually going back to Innsmouth with the resurrection being born into this new life as one of the deep ones uh, to 
be a part of that community. It's this like dark, twisted version of it, but it still really fits the themes. And I know none of the three of you have any idea what I'm talking about, but take my word that it's really, really <laughs> like a great example of this. But then I think anything that's that's kind of fantasy based is. But it, it's just interesting to me because uh, Campbell wrote about this and made the monomyth uh, kind of an essence of the cultural zeitgeist all the way back in 1949. But this story was written in 1928. So uh, like it, it's so much before that was ever a part of kind of the mindset of the of like writers, uh, at least openly. But it still follows it possibly even more closely than after the fact. Now we put words to it. We know what the process is. Mm. But then I think if you're, if you're looking at um, sort of where these stories are, are drawn from, as Jung would have put it, they're all being pulled from the same well. Same. The source well, yeah. of inspiration is, is, is the same. It's the, you know, this, this core of, of, although he was specifically looking at, at archetypes which come through in the form of characters, the structure is, is archetypical, uh, sorry, archetypical in and of itself. Yeah, the whole collective unconscious kind of thing. But mm. And I, I think th- th- there's a reason for that in the sense that if you, if you look at what are the essential universal experiences, they are very, very few. We're all born, we all die, we are all carried in a womb, and we are all... Um, uh, created in that womb by a second party. Yeah. Oh, you forgot. Um, and you forgot taxes, but yeah. Other than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but but those those are the kind of the four corners of this this universal experience, which every single living individual and dead individual has or has had. But to tap into that, what I what I wanted to postulate is that after Campbell started writing about this, and we went through various permutations to put names and definitions to it, stories on a whole still adopt this format, but then play with it more. Where prior to that, it followed that format almost uh, like sequentially, where many of the movies and, and such that we've been talking about here kind of blend multiple sections of it or do a couple of sections a second time as an extra loop for extra emphasis or something like that. And I feel like since we've started identifying the different steps as it were we've been able to play with the fundamental format more and make good stories that still follow the meta narrative but are not strictly adherent to the sequence well one of the advantages of having a laid out structure is that you can choose at any point whether you're going to use that structure or whether you're going to divert from it and i think when you get stories where uh, writers have started with this structure and stick to it rigidly it becomes very dull if you get one where they've started with this structure and then chucked it out the window it's a mess and it, it you end up with something that goes here there and everywhere and is very difficult to follow and you certainly don't remember it right. but, but we can do it in a much more deliberate way now yeah. i mean uh, we keep mentioning star wars and uh it's really well known that george lucas met with uh like like Jungian psychologists and uh, a bunch of people who know like the monomyth, they understand this kind of thing because he very specifically wanted to have his characters fulfill the various Jungian archetypes as well as follow the hero's journey like to the letter. Uh, and that you could say that that might be one of the reasons why Star Wars, especially in New Hope, resonates so hard with so many people. Yeah. 
ride, mister. Jennifer. Oh, man, you are safe for sore eyes. Let me look at you. Marty, you're acting like you haven't seen me in a week. I haven't. Are you okay? Is everything all right? I just got here, okay? Jennifer's here. We're gonna take the new truck for a spin. Well, bring her along. This concerns her, too. Wait a minute, Doc. What are you talking about? Now, what happens to us in the future? What, do we become assholes or something? Oh, no, 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 no. You, you and Jennifer both turn out fine. It's your kids, Marty. Something's gotta be done about your kids. So, to go back to your question, Alex, why? <laughs> <laughs> the the simplest explanation is that uh, it is a metaphor for pretty much any challenge that we'll face in a very s- short, concentrated fashion. Pretty much anything that we that is worth doing is going to be daunting or challenging in some way. It, we, we're going to have to overcome something. If it's if it's something we haven't yet overcome and we're not used to it, we're going to feel like, okay, right, how do I do this? And then we go through in. Not obviously, we're not slaying dragons. It's a, it's a, you know, just like giving birth and the actual challenge of going through all of that for for every woman who who goes through that and every man who goes through that with her. That in itself is a is a journey where you are facing some incredibly dark, terrifying things at times. But to be able to come out the other side of it, having learned from those experiences, if we have this pattern in our head, to actually just to look for signs and clues of what we could possibly get from this that is positive to become bigger and better people and then to take what we've learned and to become the mentor ourselves to other people then going through those journeys later. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sense of passing that on forward down through the years. And that is why story is the most important thing in the world. Well, it's, and it's like I said before, uh, humans kind of, impose pattern and narrative onto otherwise random events already we just we do subconsciously so this is this is like you say a really good framework for that but i want to take i want to take a different approach to this because um i recently listened to a very interesting podcast on the idea that narcissism is america and by by extension the west's like cultural mental disturbance and one of the points that they brought up is that so many of our movies follow this hero's journey and then also have a blank slate character as the main character so that we can impose ourselves into that narrative. Mm. Uh, The example they used was Neo, uh, because Keanu Reeves is such a blank slate of emotion most of the time that he's very easy to project on, Mm. which, I mean, might not be wrong. Yeah. But then that that reinforces the concept that our lives – are worthy of this hero's journey and are thereby not random series of events, which reinforces that narcissistic 
concept that we are more important and that we have like a purpose. You are your own special hero on your own journey. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing that gets us into a lot of trouble. You mentioned earlier the idea of the toxic masculinity sprouting out of some of this. Well, those are people who see themselves as having gone through the the hero's journey, but they're waiting for the apotheosis and the boon. They're like, well, I did the stuff beforehand. Like, yeah, I, I, the Maybe the thing he was supposed to learn is not being a dick. <laughs> but that's what I think. That's what I think. I want watch to, Thor again, guys. Well, but this is what I want to comment on is that I think that, applying the hero's journey uh, like to opposite you i think applying the hero's journey to our real lives is detrimental because it forces us to impose a narrative that doesn't have any grounding in reality on our understanding of our lives and our, our and our experiences in such a way that we anticipate the next part of it mm. and when it doesn't happen that way we get a great deal of cognitive stress properly. Why am I not special? I completely understand um, (laughs) because I've been waiting for a mentor my entire goddamn life. Lauren, (laughs) I have been waiting for a teacher to come along and say, listen, let me just, let me school your son and actually turn out to not be a crushing disappointment. And it's never happened. And it's, uh, it's the kind of thing we, I kind of had to just realize, you know what? I'm just going to have to just be that mentor myself and learn as I go and understand that the mentor can also be the student while he's doing that. But what you're describing sounds exactly like the danger of rom-coms and the danger of films that keep hammering in the one person for it, for each of you destiny soulmates thing, which is, it, it can lead to some really weird, it's not, I don't want to call it garbage. For some people that ends up being their real life and I don't want to on that well but so it, to take it can this, end up with giving people extremely skewed expectations of the kind of level of intensity of love and relationships that cannot be sustained for real life absolutely and to take this into a different psychological realm that may have a few far fewer penises than freud uh far fewer it, penises than freud is our <laughs> what cover band kick missile <laughs> cover band um the so a lot of my psycho, uh, a lot but of my not training, a bunch. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of my, um, I, I like the fact that I don't know if Banana Bunch is a band or just a non sequitur that you just thought like a bunch of penises and you're like a Banana Bunch. <laughs> banana Bunch. So, um, me off one of them. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, wow. So, let's see if I can underail that train of thought. So, a well, lot they've all of gone uh, soft. so what we're talking about is a process called enculturation and psychologically speaking it's actually very damaging uh because it is the process of um so human beings like i said they impose narrative they impose function and uh pattern but they're also cognitively very lazy that if somebody shows them subconsciously on subconsciously like a uh you should think this way and people will be like, okay, yeah, that's why some religions are really dangerous. That's why a lot of culture is really dangerous because you adopt the beliefs of a culture that is imposed upon you as your own without doubting or testing them, which is what we're talking about here. The hero's journey, the rom-coms, the you're given a narrative of how your life is supposed to go. And when it doesn't go that way because your life is a series of random events and there's no meaning to it, then 
you have a great deal of cognitive dissonance and you the only way to counteract that is basically madness and it's uh it's i i would say that uh the imposition uh, now these make great stories and they can be used as great metaphors that you can get a great deal of meaning and understanding about yourself and about the world from but as soon as you start adhering to the concepts on a very strict basis, you would, as um, Maslow would say, moving further and further away from self-actualization. And your um, to I, was it Kierkegaard would say that you're moving further and further away from being the Ubermensch because you are turning aside your free will and your ability to doubt and understand the world and your life and your place in it by taking a different structure and imposing it upon the events hoping that it fits and being content with that. But it's, it's worth bearing in mind that for a lot of people, these um, to, to choose to follow a script, um, it's, it's not something that happens consciously a lot. You get people who have their scripts imposed on them very early in life. And while I agree completely that looking at a structure like this and thinking, oh, hey, yeah, that's a great pattern to live your life by is foolish because it doesn't allow for a lot of wiggle room and it means that you try to force things into socks that don't fit. It is a great tool for looking back on something that's happened and use it as an, as an analysis to unpick that thing and work out where it went wrong. Okay, so at the moment I'm doing this and that means that this is the script structure that I'm using. So where, where has that gone wrong? What do I want to change? And at what point do I need to start unpicking the script and, and altering how I do X, Y, Z? Because as you say, Lauren, the, the cognitive dis- dissonance between this is the page I've got laid out that says this is how I should be living my life. And yet internally, I feel completely different. And if they don't match, then you have that, that feeling of separation from yourself that you can you you get stuck in a loop of doing the same thing over and over again and hoping that one of these days something is going to happen to change it and it's maybe in a way this is this is the point that's where you need something to kick you out the door and go out and change that thing but that's the thing is i would say that the imposition of this script is the downfall of this whole process because it is preventing a person to be mindful of their existence and their actions in a way that is highly detrimental to themselves and the relationships that they build with others. Uh, It's the idea that the unexamined life is not worth living where we're given the script, we're given an option to just follow, follow this. It will be your journey. You will, you will get the reward. You'll do the thing. Uh, But in the end, if you're not very mindful of that approach or mindful of the fallacy that that is a narrative, that, that life has a narrative, then uh, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And so it's really that mindfulness that most people miss out on. And I think the very fact that we're sitting here like talking about these stories and saying this is this, this is this, this is this, is in itself a mindful approach to that process because we're being more aware of the, the script that is being followed uh, to kind of mention what I said before that now that we have words for it, now that we know the script, uh, we can play with it. But at the same time, more many people have adopted it or adopted a version of it without being mindful of that approach. 
Mm, agreed. And I would, I would say that the difference there is if you take this structure, are you using it as a code book to, um, uh, to translate things and to understand things or are you using it as a map? But the fact that it should be used as a code book and not a map doesn't necessarily mean that what you should actually do is throw it out entirely. It, it has a purpose and for that purpose, it works very well. But as you say, you need to be mindful about how you're using it and how you're applying it. To go back to what I said earlier about um, the uh, the best heroes being the actual the reader of the story or the, the viewer, um, and the most important thing being that weakness is that uh, on a subconscious level, the, uh, the the viewer needs to identify, say, Woody's selfishness in Toy Story. He wants Andy to himself, and they need to understand fairly quickly on, why do I not like Woody as much as I might like him? Oh, it's because he's selfish and he wants Andy for himself, and he's kind of a dick about it, and... Uh, but, you know, I kind of want him to succeed, but I'm not entirely. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, we're watching ourselves on screen going through a um, a situation where we are having something that we love taken and divided amongst other people. And by the end of it, Woody's less selfish. And we have observed a way to acknowledge that weakness within ourselves. That's what a hero should be. A hero should be a weakness. And we can apply the fixing of those weaknesses in a conscious way rather than just expecting to go through a journey and a process and then magically have it all fixed for us at the end. We can go into it with our eyes open because at at the end of the day, as soon as you recognize that one of your weaknesses is selfishness, you're then in the position of, right, well, now I can choose to be selfish or not. You're then making a, a an active choice in which path you follow. As long as you're not aware that you're selfish, you will continue to be so, simply because you don't know when you're doing it. (laughs) Which is why Batman v Superman is so daunting a prospect for me, because what are the core weaknesses of those two characters, as written, that we can understand by the new DC uh, universe? They're both fascists. They both see the world in a very strong way, and it's very exclusionary, and neither of them are going to bend to the other or indeed allow their titanic battle to not impact upon other people. I have not yet seen any evidence in any trailer of Superman saying, let's not do this. But, you know, this will probably come out after that. So. Superman v. Batman. Whoever wins, we lose. Yes, yeah. but ultimately, <laughs> not being a fascist is not a weakness if they don't address that and, be- and become less of a pair of fascists by the end. Also, it's completely unrelatable to anybody who's not Donald Trump. Mm, so, yeah. um, <laughs> Donald Trump ain't going to watch that movie and go, hmm, I've learned something about myself today. He's going to go, why didn't Batman just kill him? But but I think the important thing here is so the the monomyth was created from the myths and the parables of ancient civilizations and movies and books and these kind of stories are our modern day parables that we're hopefully learning things from like you're saying what is selfishness and and that kind of thing but it's not necessarily something that like life doesn't follow this script but this is a way that we can process these concepts in a way that is not uh as punishing to ourselves because uh you know you can learn about the problems with being selfish on your own, uh, but it's going to be a very painful experience that you might not be able to back come back out from. Mm. While if you can watch some of these stories, some of these parables, and pick up the lesson of basically don't be a dick, 
and you move forward in your life with the concept of, well, I'm going to just choose to not be a dick. You're not following the hero's journey. You have like adopted the, the idea and the parable that that story was and used it to make yourself a better person, not through this script, but adjacent to this script in a sense. That's, that's, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm explaining no, no, myself I, I, very I, I well. No, no, I, and it, it's also then you're getting into the philosophy of what is it that, that guides us ultimately? Is it some uh, internal learned ethical structure and moral compass, or is it the repeated battering of consequences when we do behave like a dick? Or is it both? I mean, functionally, it's going to be both. Yeah. Because we have our experience and we have our rational mind. So Mm. the two together make the person. Yeah. So at the end of the day, the the return with the elixir or journey out for all of these ones that we've been talking about, at the end of the sword and the stone, um, Arthur is sat on the throne not knowing quite how he got there with a huge stack of books next to him and Merlin going, don't worry, I'll help you. And uh, it's less of a strong hero's journey. And that's one of the biggest problems I have with that as a film, because it's uh, the Arthurian goddamn legend. How do you make that a bland little series of um, episodic events? Yeah. And ultimately, the the uh, the boon that Merlin gave him in the form of knowledge and understanding. He doesn't really exercise. He doesn't he doesn't use it to go and get the sword out of the stone. He does that completely by chance. And he gets the sword, not because the sword, you know, judges him to be worthy, but because the sword goes, oh, you've got special blood. Okay, then. You happen to have the DNA coding that is written into my weird alien space handle. You know, basically, it's what, it's what Tony Stark said was the trick with Mjolnir. He said, you know, it's, it's DNA coded and, you know, if you, you, know you, you are worthy of being Thor because you're Thor. Mm. But Tony says that because Tony cannot get his head around the idea that he might not be worthy. Indeed. Uh, although I love that bit that Steve almost moves it. Uh, the, yeah, I that too. <laughs> the end of uh, Finding Nemo, um, you know, they return to the reef and uh, Marlon is now letting Nemo be his own fish. And it's a, it's a really simple, straightforward story of Marlon just letting go enough to be able to still remain close to his son that he was smothering. Uh, the end of Aliens, uh, the, uh, you know, two, sh- two shattered halves of a family are, are united and fly off to Earth um, to, to hopefully a better life and screw Alien 3 and 4. Um, and <laughs> at the end of Avatar, uh, he drops the side of himself that was white-ass Johnny Template and becomes blue-ass Johnny Template and says this was the planet that was waiting for me all along and I turned out to be the best Navi that ever there was and I helped defend these people because they're my people. And uh, And what's he going to do when the next batch of colonizers come along? Because they will. We'll see in Avatar 2, which will take place in 20... which will be released in 2037 or 39 or 2058 or 20... But however long it takes for James Cameron to work out the the, the uh, elixir of eternal life, um, the end of <laughs> the Lego movie, Emmett returns with a greater understanding of the world outside where they are and uses that to explain to the man upstairs his greater perspective, which in turn uh, is uh, mirrored in um, Finn talking to his father. And that... That the elixir is is basically that perspective uh, being given out, and then uh, a new equilibrium is restored, whereas where the son and father get to play together with a little bit of chaos and some organisation, just to sort of find that balance. But then the balance is upset again when 
little baby sister turns up with, we are from the planet Duplo. We are here to destroy you. So it's going to go in completely the opposite direction to the man upstairs' super order. It'll just be chaos, and they will have to restore a balance again, which is a wonderful way of going, you guys are never going to believe this. (laughs) Um, And the Hunger Games, uh, you know, uh, I think, don't want to spoil the ending, but basically it, uh, uh, it, it you know, finishes in a, in a resolving kind of way, which suggests that more stuff is going to be happening in the future. But Katniss herself does return to District 12, and uh, she has learned some things along the way, but those take a while to sink in. And she's also contracted a hell of a lot of PTSD along the way, which creates more problems down the line. And Thor returns to Asgard, a wiser, more selfless man, uh, able to able to sit and stand up and actually be a king and and uh, technically that uh, it kind of almost his his journey should end there and he should end up being sat on the throne of Asgard which means him being brought into the Avengers and future films is uh, is always kind of, not so much rung hollow for me but nothing has ever involved Thor as much as that first Thor. Well, you could say that the Avengers, the first Avengers, yeah. uh, since he's coming back to kind of clean up the he's mess from that first one, Loki, he's yeah. taking responsibility. But the film is not yeah. about him anymore. It's, no. it's, it's, no. uh, it's It takes his hero's journey happens, or his continuation of the hero's journey happens in there, because that's, like, that's the thing as well. Once a hero's journey ends, what do you then do with that character? Do you then have them become the mentor? Do you then have them, like in the weakest of sequels... You just do, as Ice Cube said, the exact same shit again. It's the same thing again. And give people what you feel they want, which is hollow. Or is it possible that there can be a spin on the hero's journey where the hero learns something new and, in fact, you broaden the world that everyone took for granted was only a certain type of way in the first one? That might be why so many sequels are terrible. Yeah. The most important part of this is almost always the cave, though the the darkest point, the uh, the, the most uh, stressful moment, and the point where it seems like everything's lost. Pixar are excellent at doing the darkest moment, and uh, you know, holding like you, you. By this point, you love the characters, so you are absolutely with them when they're at their lowest point. No, no, you can't. S- stop. Please don't go away. Please. No one's ever stuck with me for so long before. And if you leave, if you leave, I just, I remember things better with you. I do. Look, P. Sherman, 42, 42. I remember it. I do. It's there. I, I know it is because when I look at you, I can feel it. And, and I, I look at you and I, I'm home. I don't want that to go away. I don't want to forget. The, uh, there's a quote from Campbell here. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Ultimately, without going in there, without going into the, uh, the, 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 the place that scares you and actually confronting the thing that actually yanks your world away, uh, you don't get to come out of it a better person. You don't, you don't get to make that, get, achieve that growth. And we mentioned the shadow before, but... Um, Obviously, that's a Jungian uh, construct. Who's the best person to discuss this one? I want to say Megan or Sharon or Lauren, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, just very briefly, um, the the idea of go, of the treasure you seek being within the cave you fear the most. The simplest treasure that you get out of that cave is not being afraid of that thing anymore. Yeah. Or at least knowing that that thing will not destroy you. A lot of this is to do with our relationship with death. So many of these stories are so dangerous, they fascinate us with the, the idea of, you know, what would happen for us to come that close to death ourselves. Mm. And I think that's you, you've got two options when people are writing stories which um, need to be absorbed by families. Sometimes they skew one of two ways. They either make it too what they believe to be child friendly and the cave is not threatening enough in the first place. Um, and it's very quick and very swift and they get out of it very easily. And they miss the fact that actually you can make that cave quite threatening because the point is that they get out of it at the end. Yeah. Um, or they try and go what they consider to be adult and they make that cave way too deep and way too dark and actually there comes a point where you think you know what they're not getting out of this what's the shadow megan again any time you get to talk i want to just give you that floor well are we talking about the shadow is in the like kind of ultimate evil are we looking at more of like the shadow self and the darkness with Thin. You we say that like they're two, two different, different things. Um, <laughs> True. Okay, we can, well, we can... We've got character types. There's one we haven't really mentioned. Uh, we've got hero, mentor, threshold guards, trickster, and shapeshifter, which are often very similar. There's also herald. In the case of um, Harry Potter, the herald was Hagrid. He's the, the person who wants, the, when the letters don't get through to Harry, he has to physically deliver the message himself. And he's often the other guy who, uh, who pushes Harry, uh, who pushes the hero out the door. It's the Harry Potter hero's journey is absolutely wonderful because he, he, as Sharon said, he loops. He goes through the hero's journey in Philosopher's Stone and then he kind of repeats it for the next six books. And Philosopher's Stone itself is an, a macrocosm of the whole seven book series. And um, Deathly Hallows is a retelling of Philosopher's Stone. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that the uh, the last one, uh, hero, herald, mentor, threshold guards, shake, trickster, shapeshifter, is shadow. Almost always a dark reflection of the hero himself. What the hero could be. I I think in terms of the the structure that we're looking at, Nega Scott. Sorry. <laughs> I think the oh the specifically shadow... Nega Scott is actually kind of a nice guy because Scott Pilgrim's a selfish little shit. <laughs> Carry on. I'd, I'd say within this structure, the shadow self makes its appearance um, in either the meeting with the goddess and the uh, the woman as temptress, or the atonement with the father, depending on which, depending on whether you want your character to have a, mm. a traditionally masculine resolution or a traditionally feminine resolution, and which of those characters. When you're when you're overcoming the shadow in in the way Jung described it, you can't destroy the shadow. You can um, there's there's two things that you can do with the shadow. You can shine light on it to dispel it, which means you have to examine it very very closely, um, or you can reintegrate it and reabsorb it. But ultimately, you can't destroy it with force because the more you attack it, the more it will disappear. And and if you turn to fight it, it will be behind you. Why? Why? Why do you do it? Why? Why get up? Why keep fighting? You believe you're fighting for something, for more than your survival? Can you tell me what it is? Do you even know? 
Is it freedom or truth? Perhaps peace? Could it be for love? Illusions, Mr. Anderson, vagaries of perception. Temporary constructs of a feeble human intellect trying desperately to justify an existence that is without meaning or purpose. And all of them as artificial as the Matrix itself. Although only a human mind could invent something as insipid as love. You must be able to see it, Mr. Anderson. You must know it by now. You can't win. It's pointless to keep fighting. Why, Mr. Anderson? Why? Why do you persist? What you were saying, Lauren, about uh, toxic masculinity specifically being a uh, 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 product of the narcissistic belief that we're all on heroes' journeys and we're all special, beautiful, unique snowflakes. I can't, I'm kind of reminded of uh, Jason Robards in Parenthood saying, You misunderstood me. You weren't listening. Which is, it's, it's a misinterpretation of the, uh, the hero's journey. The idea that, you know, we're all heroes and we're all super important. Most of the time, especially modern day heroes, tend to rely on other people a hell of a lot. And mm. a lot of heroes are becoming uncommonly kind. Blimey, Harry. I didn't know you could do that. Uh, and he killed a basilisk. With the sword in Dumbledore's office. It's true. Third year, he fought with about 100 Dementors at once. And last year, he really did fight off you-know-who in the flesh. Wait. Look, it all sounds great when you say it like that, but the truth is, most of that was just luck. Now, I didn't know what I was doing half the time. I nearly always had help. He's just being modest. No, Hermione, I'm not. Facing this stuff in real life is not like school. In school, if you make a mistake, you can just try again tomorrow. But out there, when you're a second away from being murdered or watching a friend die right before your eyes, you don't know what that's like. You're right, Harry, we don't. That's why we need your help. Because if we're going to have any chance of beating... Voldemort... He's really back. And this is the kind of shit that super white supremacists are kicking out against the liberalization and pussification of, um, of media. They, they want their old heroes brought back, the, the, the piece of shit in Western heroes who would shoot you in the back. They, they want Dirty Harry back to being the hero again. People who were cruel and, cruel and selfish and were actually f***ed up hero types. See, I'd say part of that, um, that kind of dark side of it, is not so much the issue that everybody thinks they're on their own hero's journey. It's the refusal to acknowledge um, or the, the ignorance of the fact that so is everybody else. Yeah. Or more specifically, in the case of the broken heroes, refusal to accept that these heroes are in fact broken and that they need to heal so that they are no longer these cruel men. Now, that was there in Batman vs. Superman, buried under tons of rubbish, but it sure as hell was not the core theme. But no, I think that's kind of the beauty of it as well, is that we have this very universal story that 
in a more reflective way can be applied to anyone. I think it's a really nice way to to kind of look back and kind of see what what and how and and maybe help interpret your own experiences. Mm. Which is what that, makes this so universal. Absolutely. And that is, as I say, one of the ways to dispel the shadow is shine light on it and, and to, to look at it closely. And, you know, what are these flaws or weaknesses um, and, and using a narrative structure to identify those str- flaws and weaknesses and tackle them is it's it's a tool. Ultimately, it's you, you need a, a, a selection of different ways to tackle the problems and challenges that life is going to throw at you. And ultimately, story is an extremely powerful tool. It's not perfect for everything, but it's it's a very powerful tool if it's used in the right way. If you had a world without story, uh, a world without oral history, and a world without uh, being able to learn things from uh, metaphor, effectively, you've got the Thermians from Galaxy Quest entirely <laughs> unable to really learn or understand uh, and understand duplicity, unable to really survive um, because they're, they take everything at face value and they don't, um, they don't self-evaluate for yeah. based there's, there's looking all, at their own weaknesses. There's all sorts of things that modern civilization, in fact, human civilization, when you're talking about it en masse and not being just a handful of people who are actually able to directly interact to and speak with each other, um, that entirely rely on the ability to storytell, the ability to um, extrapolate this thing represents this other thing. We couldn't have money if we couldn't understand the idea that this thing represents this other thing. We could swap a sheep for a barrel of butter, but we couldn't have a thing in the middle that said, I can give you this for this sheep, and then later on you can give that for a barrel of butter, because that depends on those three people involved in that transaction agreeing that this stone, piece of metal, piece of paper, whatever, represents both a sheep and a barrel of butter. (laughs) <laughs> we wouldn't have we wouldn't have the ability to abstract yeah yeah without stories i mean we wouldn't even be able to really we wouldn't even have color if you think about it because like you can't describe what a color like i'm like i'm looking at a pink thing right now but i can't describe what this is without saying that it's pink or like a light red or something like that mm. you but can't even then descri- you need red <laughs> that's what i'm saying is you can't describe it without the words that we have abstracted to be the experience of what we call color. And without the stories, we wouldn't even know what that is. Uh, a, a point that I've, I've heard brought up in other areas, in uh, Homeric epics, they always refer to the ocean as wine-colored, or the, the Mediterranean Sea as wine-colored, because they didn't know what blue was. Like, their culture didn't have access to something. Like they, they had no cultural construct of blue. They couldn't point at the sky, you know, that. But they described the sky as various shades of red, orange, copper, brass. They never describe it as blue. Were they living in they 300? Well, I mean, essentially, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, they were. I didn't realize but that it, was a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> it's it is actually a hundred percent true. The uh, oh, I mean, man, they they could they uh, had the power of slow motion. Yeah, well, that's why the Spartans were so fierce. Well, yeah, but no, but seriously, like that is an example where culturally uh, they didn't have 
the notion of blue because it wasn't built into their stories. And because of that, they described what we would call blue as something else entirely because blue is actually pretty rare in the like animal world outside of the sky. Mm. Um, so the closest it, it's, you normally get in terms of natural dyes is kind of a purpley color. Right. Mm-hmm. And they had purple. Like a, like a lapis lazuli kind of stone, which I don't think is quite native to that area. That's uh, that they would have found that because that's in Africa and Egypt area. But yeah, yeah, it's um, south. Yes, yes. Uh, but that's but that's the thing is they they wouldn't have like they didn't know what to even call it. I, and actually, I guess since Homer would be Grecian stories, it was specifically Greek. I'm talking about. Eventually, the the Romans, whenever they would have found things like lapis lazuli in their empire, they did construct a. Um, the word for blue. Oh, ah, oh, man. And the best example of that is the third book. So there's the Iliad, the Odyssey, and then Virgil wrote the Aeneid, which is supposed to be the third book in this like sort of trilogy to make the Romans feel like they were awesome. It was like a, it was a cultural propaganda piece so that they could, so that Romans could feel like they were descended from the Trojans and that they ultimately kicked the shit out of all the Greeks. And that's why, like, it was like their revenge, their like cultural revenge. But, uh, in that book, the color blue does appear. So by that point, the culture that was writing that, the Roman culture, did know what blue was, and they did use it in their stories, but in Greek, they didn't. So it's, I don't know, it's like we would, we would not be able to abstract pretty much anything without stories. We wouldn't have human society as we know it. Okay. No. On <laughs> that bombshell. <laughs> Folks, thank you very, very much for coming on to talk about this. I knew you wouldn't disappoint us, both of you guys. That 45 minutes got to three hours pretty quick, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we said before we started, let's just make this a quick one then if you're feeling ill. Yes. How, how ill are you? Because I honestly expected you guys to uh, – uh, Megan, you, you sound rough. I'm a little I'm a little rough. Okay. Well, I've got some <laughs> – some sinus joy. Uh, okay. Well, it hasn't ca- stopped you providing some amazing uh, content, so thank you for that. Thank you. I tried to mute myself and I tried to blow my nose and <laughs> and sniffle really loudly because it was I'm, I'm I'm drainagey. It's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. Right. Um, so, where can people find you? Oh, uh, well, I... If you want to it. advertise on Megan's behalf for, for Ian, you can uh, you can just kind of like summarize that one. Well, I mean, I guess. So Megan is the other and quite, quite possibly better half of uh, <laughs> a couple whose partner is Ian Hopwood, who is my co-host for Year of Steam, which is a nice little podcast that we do alongside Laura K. Buzz, the one and only Queen Empress of Butts. And uh, we talk about random Steam games that we play, and sometimes they're good, most times they're not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, Megan, anything that you'd like to uh, plug? Uh, da, 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 da. New Century. Totally <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no go back. Cor- you were about to say something really good. That was lovely. Okay, carry on. No, uh, catch, you got to catch Corporal Higgins on Arlington. Yeah, you do. Latest portion of the New Century universe. Because Corporal Higgins is the best. At Just least. I'll lay that right out there. She is, yeah. This is, uh, um, this is a, uh, a cartographer who is 
growing in importance within the uh, uh, National Intelligence Agency. <clears throat> okay. And also, the aforementioned Tiger's Eye, she plays uh, Liseth the Leopard in that. Yes, I did. Yes. Um, very, very well. Yeah. Okay. Right, folks. So if you like the idea of that, if you haven't yet listened to or read Tiger's Eye and you want a really, really great hero's journey, well, that's the one to go for. Because it's everything that we've described here and more because I subvert the hell out of it on uh, frequent occasions. And it's, a, 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 from, from what I hear, a deeply satisfying story to absorb. I had never laid eyes on a cheetah before this. Arish is shorter than I with thin, powerful legs. He has a grace and speed that put all other species to shame. I comfort him as he mourns his cousins. In doing so, I keep my mind from the thoughts of my dear brother, whom Corral crushed to death yesterday. That hate has lived in my belly. I imagine cutting her tendons and tearing out her throat in so many red dreams. But it is for nothing. I must let this go. Okay. Thank you very much to Megan Hopwood. Bye. Lauren Grief. <laughs> no problem. Uh, I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's Out. out. Talk about Take those pictures down Check it out Truth or consequence Say it aloud Use that evidence Race it around There goes my hero there goes my hero He's Don't the best of them Read it out While the rest of them Peter out Truth or consequence Say it aloud Use that evidence Race it around
Thanks. The song's on the third record. It's called Next Year. It sounds like this.